I do not know what to make of this podcast. No, that's a little bit vague. I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed sitting down with our guest. And when I say that, obviously you'll know what I mean after listening to it. But there are some uncomfortable things that come up. Our guest is involved in a case, a criminal case against him. And his counter to those claims is alarming. It is alarming because there are just a lot of repercussions to it. And one of those is a further eroding of my faith in the criminal justice system. And that's if all of this is true. I I don't even know where I stand with that. So obviously I can't tell you where to stand. And even if I did, I wouldn't. I hope that you listen to this and you draw your own conclusions. That's all I can ask from any of these podcasts. And I don't know where I stand. I, again, I really like talking with our guest. It was for three hours. I want to believe him. But I also know that I tend that way in my own life. I want to believe people. I want to believe that people don't lie. And this isn't about him. This is just in general. I, I want to believe people. And that has gotten me into precarious situations in the past. And so I'm, I'm more cautious with it now. Or at least I'm trying to be more cautious. I'm trying to be a little more hesitant in, in just instantly siding with someone. I think that's, hopefully, I'm going to get there someday. But I don't know. I don't know what to make of what our guest said. It's been, I'm recording this today, which is Thursday. You guys will hear this tomorrow, Friday. So I've had some time to process this podcast and think about it. I'm sorry I couldn't get it out sooner. Luckily, this was one of the live ones, so I feel at least semi-decent about we got the content out there. He got his side of the story out there. Hopefully, people were able to listen to it before the election day. But I don't know. This is this podcast is bigger than the, the DA election race, which, again, our guest is running for that. I know I didn't mention that because I'm, I'm kind of preoccupied with his case. Um, but, yeah, I think it's bigger than that. And I think he would say that as well. It's His case is, is a big thing. And I don't know. I mean... In doing this podcast, I've learned, you know, small town politics is a rough business. It's a rough game. And it is not always played fairly. Which sucks. I don't know where I'm going with all this. I think I'm just, I don't know, pondering how nothing is ever black and white. Which is good and not good at the same time. So I will shut up now and I will let our guests do some of the talking. Again, I'm, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed talking with them. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate him taking time to, to come on and and do this. And I don't know, let me know what you guys think about this. Cause I, I'm in a bit of, I'm in a bit of a spot with this one. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. So, without further ado, please give it up for Michael Acosta.
Okay, and we are live. Michael, how's it going? It's all right. You came prepared today. We were talking a little bit about, you said you had something already queued up for us. Well, no, I was just reading a report uh, from 2007 on the impact of, uh, uh, on the criminal justice system of of confidential informants and what effect they've had on civil rights abuse. Okay. So that's one of my main issues is in transparency and the lack of transparency in that particular element of the criminal justice system and how it leads to civil rights abuses because of uh, promises of leniency and the lack of transparency and there's no follow-up on how reliable an informant is. And uh, there are files kept on them, but they're not public. Uh, The FBI keeps statistics on their use of confidential informants and how many authorized crimes have been um, allowed by the FBI, but the local law enforcement doesn't do so. And this report is a joint uh, congressional report in 2007 documenting that phenomenon, uh, that uh, local and state use of informants is a completely non-transparent system of uh, element of the criminal justice system that is being abused and that leads to civil rights abuses. And I think until that's exposed and corrected, we're never going to have accountability um, and reconciliation of why we are the most incarcerated country in the world and not the safest, because that's the gap right there. That's the lack of transparency, um, because the informants... uh, that they use tend to uh, be recidivists and they do so with impunity um, so that they're let off uh, for a crime that they've committed and not, that bolsters them in doing additional crimes. And it's all done in the name of um, enforcing one category of crimes, which is the, the controlled substance laws, which not coincidentally are the most lucrative laws for law enforcement to uh, pursue. How common is that here using... Informants. Absolutely common. Absolutely common. Pretty common. Uh, the task force keeps, uh, if you look at the sheriff's department policies and procedures, I believe it's chapter eight, but I could be wrong on that. There is a entire chapter devoted to the use of confidential informants in this community. And in that, it says that files will be kept and uh, 1099s will be issued even to these informants. There's supposed to be a, a moral background check on them, um, which I doubt happens. Uh, and they're supposed to be marking when reliable information was given when it was not given. And then at the end of the year, there's supposed to be an audit of this system. And I doubt that that's ever happened to. Very similar to the audit of uh, the destruction log for uh, guns that are collected in this community. I highly doubt that any guns have ever been destroyed in this community. When the judge orders uh, a firearm to be disposed of or destroyed at the end of a, say, felon in possession case, uh, is there any follow-up on auditing whether that gun was ever destroyed? Doubtful. There's no such log that I've ever seen in this community. And so I'm guessing that those guns are just ending up in private collections of law enforcement. And most of these informants are criminals? Would that be safe to say? Most of them, yes, are pending charges. uh, And so they're looking for leniency. Some of them are professional informants that um, aren't being paid in addition, um, but sometimes a combination. Uh, The the manual actually says, the chapter in the Sheriff's Department, PMP, says that they will be paid basically on a contingency basis meaning however much law enforcement takes, however valuable this case ends up being for us, uh, you'll get a contingency based upon that, which is outrageous, really. Professional informant, meaning that's all that they do is, is well, rat on people? Well, that's um, some people. I don't know the extent of how many can solely rely on that in this community. Um, the, the federal um, papers that I've read said that there are several that could easily live off a salary of $200,000 a year. I don't think that's happening here. That's for a high-level DEA agent. 
Um, but they, at least they're keeping track of that and they make that information public other than the identification information of the person that that information is Could tracked. you do me a favor? Sorry yeah. to interrupt you. Could you oh, just pull that right in front of sure. your mouth? Yeah, so they, what the feds call it is um, otherwise illegal activity. Otherwise illegal if we hadn't authorized it. That's so what they call that's the category. Yeah, well, no, that's, that's the category of crimes that are committed that are authorized by the FBI in the pursuit of the drug war. It's, it's categorized as otherwise illegal acti activity. So, because it would be otherwise illegal had we not authorized it. So, and I think it said that the FBI had authorized something like uh, like 9,000 crimes in four years or something like that. There's, and what specifically falls under that category? Well, it can be everything from um, selling narcotics to um, um, participating in murder at the federal level. They had a documented case of an informant that was so valuable to them that they couldn't blow his cover that they allowed him to participate in setting someone up to be killed. And that actually happened. That's an extreme case, and that's why it was in this report, I think. That's one of the things that triggered this report was that incident. But um, more, lo more locally, that's not the case. More locally, what it is is property crimes. And my, my experience and opinion is that what's happening is the property crimes are going up in this community and we seem to have no solution in sight because the worst, most egregious offenders, uh, uh, property criminals, uh, th thieves, vandals, mostly thieves, are, are informants and that they are allowed to continue what they do, steal our stuff in the communities around here um, in exchange for information that leads to the uh, prosecution of drug offenders, which they can invoke the forfeiture laws on. The forfeiture laws only apply to drug offenses. You can't take... Uh, the home or the car or the bank accounts of a child molester, for example, which is unfortunate because it's the same theory. You say, well, the child molester used that car and that house in the commission of a crime. Why can't we forfeit those things? Because that's the theory with the drug laws is that you use your house and your car in the commission of a drug crime. We're going to take that now. You're, you're, for, you're forfeiting it. So that doesn't happen in any, any other category of crime. Asset forfeiture laws only apply to the controlled substance laws, the sales of controlled substances. And that's that's unfortunate. They should either be eliminated so that there's no profit incentive for the police at all, because there shouldn't be. They're a government agency. Uh, they shouldn't be profiteering. They should be privatizing, profiteering um, off of doing their job as public servants. Um, or you universalize the civil forfeiture laws and make them equally applicable to all categories of law. Why is it only extended to, to drug charges uh, as of now? That's just the way that they were written. I mean, that was the way the state and the federal government has their uh, federal uh, federal and state asset forfeiture laws all apply to the war on drugs. That's Because I guess that's what gave birth to it is the war on drugs, which, by the way, at this point in history, uh, the World Health Organization and the United Nations have both asked uh, for a closure to the war on drugs. I believe they've both officially sanctioned decriminalization of, of controlled substances as a matter of world health because um, of the number of... Um, HIV, hepatitis C, uh, overdose cases, all three of those categories, when you decriminalize, go, go down. And then there's the effect that um, drug transactions on the streets um, put people in situations where they can become victims very easily. And so you have victimization of addicts um, and just criminally, criminalized situations, criminalized places, as opposed to decriminalizing and putting all of that in a doctor's office. I, I, it's... it's Something I feel very strongly about that the district attorney's office should not be a social service agency. It, if a case goes to the district attorney's office, it should be worthy of putting a human in a cage, which is an extreme 
remedy if you think about it. You know, you're treating someone like an animal, okay? Someone that can't behave to the point where we, as a society, have to take a human, put them in a cage, okay? Do you want to do that to addicts? Do you want to do that to um, low-level offenders? Probably not. It's not worth putting a human in a cage for. But what I see is a lot of cases that go through the district attorney's office don't end up in a jail sentence. They end up um, being a quasi- supervised social service agency where the court time is wasted in monitoring people's rehabilitation progress. And I don't think that's what we should use the one office that can put people in a cage for. We should be using it to put people in cages that need to be there. Because I'm not saying, I'm not a decarceral candidate. I don't believe that we should let everyone out of jail. I think we should maximize our jail space, not build another jail, but keep it full of the right people. So I, I, I'm all about, we don't have to put more people in jail, we have to put the right people in jail. Um, and so I, I, that's where I differ from Chase Boudin, for example, from San Francisco, who is more of a decarceral, let people out of jail, deal with it in Who's other ways. Who's Chase Boudin? He's the San Francisco district attorney that is being recalled right now because they're saying he's soft on crime. It came up recently in the uh, local community papers because um, supposedly Humboldt County Drug Task Force went down to San Francisco, saw open air fentanyl transactions going on, and instead of busting right there the supply side intervening at the supply interdicting at the supply side right there and handing them over to san francisco police which would have been great because they would have paid for the prosecution and the incarceration of those people instead of us they allowed that transaction to occur they followed the buyers back to humboldt county and busted these people past the humboldt county line so now we're housing those people we didn't get the supply side of it and uh it's then they turned around and said well it's chase between fault for being weak on crime doesn't make any sense. doesn't check out, right? They could have inter- intervened right then and dealt with the supply side. The whole war on drugs is bla- based on supply side intervention. You're, you're interdicting on the supply side, cutting off the supply, getting higher up the ladder, not on the demand side. And so you don't believe that drug charges warrant going to jail? I don't believe, uh, well, I don't believe addicts should be treated as criminals. That's what I don't believe. So that's... Uh, these Across are, the border, is that just extended to people that are low-level dealers? Well, it's yes. Across the board, the board. Where do you draw the line on that? I don't really draw the line. I think that they are they shouldn't be criminal. I think I, I believe in the World Health Organization's position, the United Nations position, and twenty nine other countries that are following that position now. That is, uh, controlled substances should be decriminalized as a matter of world health. Um, and that it should be dealt with as a matter of world health. In the United Kingdom, if you're a heroin addict, uh, you go into a doctor, say, I'm a heroin addict, they give you a prescription for regulated doses of heroin, and in 10 years' time, 50% of those people have quit on their own accord. 50% success rate over 10 years. Our success rate over 10 years is about 10% in the the process of of criminalizing. What about drug traffickers? Well, drug traffickers... I understand understand the line of thinking for the casual user... Or right. the low-level heroin addict. I get that. Right. I agree with that. I think for the most part, the war on drugs is pretty much on its last legs. I think yeah. it's safe to say that drugs basically won. But we do have a problem with fentanyl, especially yes. up here. That's so an that's, issue. How would you attack that? So the, the fentanyl issue is, to me, is important, but it's, it's just one more um, poster child for the war on drugs. It, fentanyl, people have to remember, has been legal, though regulated, for years. It is handed out in doctor's offices all over the place. Uh, I once had a girlfriend that had fentanyl patches. But so is Adderall, right? Right, yeah, exactly. That's just meth. uh, Adderall, actually methamphetamine hydrochloride, is also legal on the books by the FDA of one company called uh, Maine Pharma, which is licensed to distribute it. Uh, 
in its pure raw form for medical purposes. And you have to wonder, well, wait a second, are these illegal drugs or are they just highly regulated drugs? Because <laughs> that's what they are. They're highly regulated. Fentanyl has been around for years. What ha what's killing people and what the issue is, is street fentanyl. As because opposed, it's latest. Because it's unregulated dosages. For example, just the pure uh, potency of it is killing people, I believe. Um, and so the difference between street fentanyl and doctor's office fentanyl is you have a regulated dosage and you have um, some appropriate um, you know, follow-up with this person as opposed to a judge following up with an addict in court. You have a doctor following up with this person in the medical office and prescribing it to them. And so what the countries are realizing, the World Health Organization realizes, is that uh, overdoses go down. HIV goes down. Hepatitis C goes down. You don't see needles around your neighborhood. Um, and the supply side of it is just economics. The supply side just, um, the price goes down, not many people are going to want to sell it. So what happens with, uh, that's, if you deal with it on the demand side through a doctor's office. Now, if, if the supply side interdiction model, if you uh, go after suppliers like the war on drugs does, and you, you get some suppliers successfully, then supply is reduced, demand stays the same, and what happens to price? Price goes up. Less supply, it's, it's, it's less supply, same demand, right? So the price goes up on the economics model, and therefore there's more incentive to enter the market in supplying it. That's why we never make any progress. <laughs> so it's your solution to just legalize it all? Uh, to, no, to decriminalize it. Okay, this is, it's very important. I think a policy of confiscation is, is um, the most effective, co cost-effective and efficient method of dealing with most possessory crimes. And when I say possessory crimes, I'm saying there's two categories of crimes, if you look at it in this perspective. There's, there's crimes that cause harm. There's crimes where we're, risk, where we're regulating the risk of harm. So, for example, a gun or a bullet doesn't harm anyone. It's a tool. It's, it's an object. A person uses that to harm someone. So if you say a felon in possession, I'm taking your gun, um, you're, just, you're regulating a risk of harm. Um, if you, you arrest someone for hitting someone in the face, that is a harm to someone. Okay? That person needs to be in a cage because <laughs> they hit someone or they used a gun on someone or they attempted to use a gun. Um, if I catch someone who's a felon in possession hypothetically, because I'm not a law enforcement officer, then uh, I would look to why are they a felon in the first place? If they're a felon because they were a pot dealer way back in the 80s, or they're a felon because they were a heroin dealer, um, there's no evidence they ever hurt anyone. And so it would be more efficient from a purely fiscal standpoint to simply confiscate that drug or confiscate that fentanyl or confiscate anything that is contraband, take it off the streets, accomplishes the purpose of removing it from being used. Now, the question is, do you want to put someone who has $200 worth of fentanyl in their pocket and it's evidence of sale, there's evidence he's selling it or she's selling it, um, at, or a gun that's worth you know, 500 bucks? Do you want to then spend as a society $100,000, $106,000, according to the state of California, to put that person in a cage for a year over a $500 gun or $200 worth of fentanyl? Do you want to spend that kind of money, or do you want to reserve that space for a bigger sentence for someone who actually harmed someone? But wouldn't federal legalization wouldn't that help with regulating dose quantity yeah sure and any kind of legalization. i mean w wouldn't decriminalization just miss all that and you're still well, going to have that black market and you're still going to have well de decriminalization is as i mean there's there's decriminalization there's legalization legalization is it's sort of semantic because like i said fentanyl is already legal in the sense of it's just highly regulated legal yeah but it's not legal in the sense that i could just walk to CVS and buy some. Right, right. No, that's that's 
street fentanyl. You're talking about buying it on the corner, street corner or somewhere. That um, we we I don't think we should legalize that. I'm not saying we should legalize that. It defeats the purpose of um, putting it in a doctor's office. It needs to be regulated by a, a medical professional. If you feel if you just but doesn't it have to be legal in order for doctors to well, just being, give it out it recreationally? Be, it's a controlled controlled being. Um, like I said, like I said, methamphetamine and hydrochloride is already on the books, FDA approved for Maine Farmer to sell, but it's regulated. So it has to be regulated highly to be um, used medically. Um, in the case of Oxycontin, which was a crisis, um, and I think that was some industry um, inside scandal there, I think that um, it needs to be regulated. I think you take it off the streets. People don't want to see drug deals on the streets, and fentanyl is a dangerous drug. If it gets uh, attached to it, it gets spilled on something. Kids have overdosed doing, you know, that's so it's Well, I think it takes, dangerous. it's a grain of sand, right? Yeah, that's yeah, all it takes. Right. So you want to remove it from the streets. Yeah. So th to remove it from the streets, you would, uh, so there's two things going on here. One is decriminalizing to put it in the doctor's office um, so that um, people go to their doctor and say, I'm a opioid addict. Please give me a prescription for opioids until I decide myself psychologically, I get over my uh, addiction disorder. Okay. And we keep them afloat and prevent their ODing prevent their overdosing and pre prevent them from getting any diseases associated, keep them out of criminal situations on the streets where they could be victimized until they decide to recover, because it's a psychological phenomenon, addiction is. There's no cure for addiction. It's, an, it's a disorder. Um, so the, the other end is to confiscate the illegal street drugs, confiscate them, and not necessarily say this person, this human belongs in a cage for a flat year on a three-year sentence, you do about one, well, if you go down, you do one year. If you stay locally, you do a year and a half at a cost of $100,000 per head per year. So we have to make That's the cost of putting somebody in the jail? Yes. Here locally? That, that's $100,000. $106,000 is the Office of Legislative Analysts, uh, Analysis in the state of California estimates that it costs any political subdivision in the state of California $106,000 a year to incarcerate someone. That's the average. So we have to make a, I mean, I'm a fiscal conservative. Um, libertarian sort of Republican, okay? <laughs> I, I, Milton Friedman once said, geez, it's easier to just hand someone a buck than to pay for the welfare bureaucracy to give them that buck. It's going to cost us $3 to have a welfare bureaucracy give them a dollar. Why don't we just give them the dollar and save the other two? And that was an idea ahead of its time in the 70s. Richard Nixon actually proposed that, the negative income tax system, it was called. And people thought it sounded like communism, so they shot it down. <laughs> but from a fiscally conservative standpoint, which is what Milton Friedman wa was, he was a fiscal conservative Republican, it made sense. You know, if, if we're going to take um, a bullet, put a felon in, in, in jail, a felon in possession of, an, of ammunition, for example, it's a 1623 triad on sentencing. Um, if they have any prior record, they probably do because they're a felon. Um, they're going to get the three-year upper term. It's going to be uh, one year if he goes down on a bus ride, uh, one and a half years here locally. So you're talking hundred dollars to $150,000 to house a person who had $2 bullet doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, and, and furthermore, I, I think if we just confiscate that bullet and have him agree to a search and seizure clause uh, by consent for the next six months, and we can search him the next six months again, we'll probably get some more bullets if he's a repeat offender <laughs> off the streets. So you're getting more bullets and less money, spending less money doing so, right? So uh, because probably that person has a stash of bullets, he's going to go get some more, and we're going to take them from him again. <laughs> so... It just makes sense, a policy of confiscation um, at first level of intervention. Now, if I find someone who is, uh, has a previous history of domestic violence or attempted assault or assault, 
and you find them with a gun, you want to arrest that person, put them in a cage. <laughs> you know, because that person, the risk of harm is, is extremely high there. But again, if they have no history of violence, um, people have, have bullets and guns for various reasons, especially in a rural community if they're in southern Humboldt, um, because they're in the woods, uh, because guns are, are a valuable asset that retain their value. One of the most, one of the best assets you can, one of the best investments you can make to retain value would be firearms, honestly, because they retain their value very well. I, I know um, people that have received their entire inheritance in firearms. <laughs> so uh, not that they should be carrying around the street, but remember in this, in this state, and the Ninth Circuit has commented on this recently in a case uh, against Hawaii, that we, no lo- we, can, we cannot open carry in the state a, a firearm. At the same time, you need a permit to conceal carry, and that is discretionary on behalf of the Sheriff's Department to give you a discretionary permit to conceal carry. So truly, we don't have a right to carry a gun at all anywhere in California, um, other than in your home. Once you spe- who needs, I mean, you might not need the gun in your home. How do you protect, protect yourself from criminals on the streets if you can't open carry and you can't conceal carry because the sheriff said you can't have a concealed weapon permit? Okay, so taking a beat for a sec. When we spoke through email, you said you felt like you had revised your message mm-hmm. a little bit. Obviously, drugs. Seems like it's a strong part of that. Mm -hmm. And bringing down the overhead at the jail seems like that factors in as well. Yeah. What is your message? What is the platform that you... The platform is... If you had to hone it into three things, what... The first three things you tackle as district attorney, what would that be? Well, as as priorities. And and the the motto is, it was not about putting more people in jail. It's about putting the right people in jail. And that says a lot if you think about it, because I'm not a decarceral candidate. I do believe that... We should be using the jail, the real estate we've created for, for uh, offenders, to its maximum extent. I don't think we should be building more jails in this community because it's already symbolic to me that the largest building in Humboldt County uh, is the jail. <laughs> As a, the, our skyline consists of the jail downtown, okay? Not great. <laughs> That's not a great yeah. s- you know, metaphorically or symbolically. So I don't like that. So, But we have a good facility. Let's use it to its maximum. Let's use all the real estate in it, meaning there are plenty of offenders who post-conviction um, are dangerous. They've committed some crime they have to be punished for. Um, let's give them bigger sentences up front, not rely on probation, and use that jail to the maximum extent we can, but not rely on it for uh, pretrial offenders unless they're dangerous uh, to uh, the community. So people who have not been convicted of a crime are presumed innocent. They shouldn't be occupying such a large percentage of that jail. Okay, um, Probation violators who are actually in jail, not for any criminal offense, but because of a probation violation, which isn't criminal at all. It might be they gave a bad test of, uh, or they didn't check in. Checking in with probation is not a penal code violation. So while we give them a discount up front on their crime, whatever, put them on probation, we don't put them in jail then. But we're going to put them in. We're going to nitpick them the next three years over little things and put them in jail. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but don't you think you have to set up standards so that people, oh sure, follow follow the the line that they're supposed to be walking on? I, I, the standard is well, the standard for I'm not trying to regulate people and trying to punish them if I'm putting them in jail. I'm trying to punish them. I'm, I'm well, yeah, the criminal justice system is definitely yeah. broken. I'm not going to argue with you on that. But as far as these steps that you have to follow when you get out of jail, like checking in with your probation officer. That seems kind of I think it's important. a joke. I think it's, I, honestly, probation is um, broken. It's uh, that, so the last, whole, the whole, probation should be completely abolished, in my opinion. Probation And is, replaced? That's kind of a no, wild statement. No, just not, taken not, out. No, just taken, not really. I mean, you just punish people up front. You, pe- you do the crime, you do your time up front. 
you don't get probation. The theory of 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 criminal justice in probation is a second chance theory. Okay, the retributive theory of of, of of criminal justice is that things you get it has to be retrospective. You get punished for something you did do already, not in the future or something like that. Um, that it's um, proportional. The punishment fits the crime. Proportional to what you did, the harm you actually created, not the risk of harm, but the harm. Okay. And it has to be fair. It has to be equitable between people that you get the same punishment that I get for the same crime, proportional crime, uh, punishment, right? That's the th theory of retrib retributive justice classically. We have to go back to that. Probation flies in the face of that. It says, okay, well, you committed this crime, and we're looking back retrospectively, but you deserve a second chance, so we're not going to punish you fully right now for what you should get. We're going to give you a second chance. And But if you don't do these littler hoops here, we're going to keep nitpicking and putting you in, in jail. We're going to regulate your behavior for three years. Why? Why just punish the person for what they did? And when they've paid their debt to society, they're free of the system. It's just a simple model, right? Uh, probation has become a bureaucracy and an industry in itself. And it's, it's not effective at preventing recidivism at all. Okay, so, so I agree with you that the system is broken again. I don't know about probation because I haven't really delved into that aspect yet. But what, I mean, all that sounds great in theory, I, I suppose. But what power do you actually have as DA to do anything with that? Obviously the jail. You have a ton. You have a ton. Because, so the so 90% of the cases are plea bargained. Okay. 90% um, should be plea bargained. Because 90% uh, of the time, the facts aren't really in dispute to the point where it needs to go to a jury trial. So those 90%, you have make, make a stipulation with the other side um, regarding what the punishment should be. And as DA, I would eliminate probation from that calculus. I would just say um, my offer is X time based on the fact that we can have so many of you in our jail, which has so many spaces for it, and you are a priority category of criminal, and so we're going to make space for you in this, and you're going to do all your time up front. You're going to serve the time for your crime, and there's not going to be probation involved. So... In the end, they're going to have to um, look at doing all of that time up front, and we won't need probation. Because in probation, by definition, probation is a discount on sentencing, right? You're, t you're telling someone, you really deserve the triad, 1623, but we're going to give you a second chance. Why? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Punish people for what they did, and then let them go back to their lives. So what about, because my understanding of probation as well is that if you commit a lower level crime, a misdemeanor, you can go straight to probation. And you don't have to do jail time. That's unregulated uh, probation. They're on probation with sometimes with search and seizure. Any condition of probation has to be has to have a nexus to the crime. So if I have a client that commits a low-level drug offense misdemeanor and they're put on probation, summary probation, for example, and the, the standard terms of probation come back with an alcohol restriction, I can have that stricken because it, there's no nexus to the crime. Okay. So, um, but most of them for drug crimes, gun uh, gun crimes, um, ammo stuff like that. Um, they have search and seizure provisions for that type of thing. So, which is good, but you can still have you can still have search and seizure. I think that should be attached to a policy of confiscation, where we just take people's stuff off the streets, take the contraband off the streets, and put, make them sign a voluntary uh, search and seizure for six months or whatever length, and uh, let them go on with their lives um, rather than putting people in jail or prison for voluntary a year. search and seizure. Meaning for six months, you could just go search their house. Six months at uh, any point in time. Yeah, that's how it operates without warning. Now. That's how it operates now, and that's that's. But that's under probation now. That's under probation now. If you're put on probation, there's a search and seizure term. You don't. So have... you would just keep that included in whatever you draft up, but eliminate. Yeah. 
probation. Eliminate the probation bureaucracy because it's it's it doesn't make any sense. I would make the people do their time up front. So for a low level drug, and we'd have to decide. Now I'm proposing that we decide what the sentences are based on the availability in the jail. Like I said, we're not going to have an empty jail. We're going to have a full jail of these people that we decide to put in cages, humans in cages, right? So um, if if we decide after some analysis that that is a 90-day sentence for a low-level drug offender or a 180-day sentence for a low-level drug offender, okay, they're going to, whatever crime, if it's worth putting them, if it's worth going through the DA's office, they're going to do some time. They're going to know that. There's not going to be any probation second chance. If we successfully achieve a prosecution, a conviction or a prosecution, they will do jail time, period. Um, and just not give a second chances. Their second chance comes when they're done with their, their time. When they're done with their time, they're supposed to be, you know, they serve their, they pay their debt to society. They're, you know, go on with their normal lives at that point, not have to be regulated. The other stupid thing about probation is that you're telling people, for example, uh, okay, you're, you're a bad guy. We're going to put you, we're going to give you a second chance, even though you're a bad guy, but we're going to put you on probation, but you can't leave this county now for three years. Why do we have this policy that keeps bad guys in the county for three years to regulate? If they want to leave, let them leave. In fact, I'm a big believer now in exile, in straight banishment of people. Um, as a form of punishment. As a form of punishment. As a form That's of pretty a, crazy, isn't it? Not really. It's, and, but then doesn't that just send them off to another county to commit a crime? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think that the effect would be, hey, gee, I can't go back to Humble. You know, how many counties am I going to get booted from before I learn my lesson? Um, and the other thing is that CDC is already giving us an inordinate amount of parolees in this county, and I think this county naturally attracts a lot of uh, offenders and criminal uh, mindsets because of its uh, remoteness within the state of California and the uh, sparse population. You're talking 130-something thousand people over a vast geographic area, and it's just a Is magnet. that legal, though? Can you Absolutely expel somebody from it? Yes, you can you do can. that. Even if they own property here? Um, by consent, yes, of course you can. By consent? By Well, th- that's the thing. You catch them with the, let's say we have a policy where we're going to confiscate people with guns unless they have a violent history. We're going to arrest them and prosecute them. But they're a felon in possession for some nonviolent reason. That's why they're a felon. Uh, you take their gun and they say we have a policy that says, well, three times, three confiscations, they're a repeat offender. We're just going to ask them to step out of the county for three years because that would be the maximum sentence on a felon possession case, right? So we caught him with that gun the third time and say, hey, look, you can, we can prosecute you now. In fact, we could probably prosecute you for all three of the last cases, okay? And that's, uh, it'd be three years plus one-third the midterm of the other two, which one-third of um, uh, two is eight months. So you get these strange, you know, one-year, eight-month, or two-years, four-month sentences, right? So w- after good time calculations, it'd be two years, four months. You could do the maximum amount in jail. You could do, uh, with good time, you'd be doing... Two, th- two years, four months, or you can do, you can step out of county for the full term as if, you know, you didn't have good time, which is double that. So, you know, five years, eight months, whatever it is, whatever it turns out to be. If so I you years, would give them the ultimatum? I, I would give them the maximum st- sentence to step out of the county rather than do half that time in jail. And so, and the agreement would be that um, they leave the county for that period of time. Uh, and this is for recidivists, mind you. This isn't just Everybody gets busted and they're asked to leave the county. This is for what to do about recidivism. People, especially with property criminals, you catch someone committing a petty theft against a store owner, against Winco, Walmart, Target. These businesses are shutting down because people are stealing so many products. It's sad. I don't want Target to shut down. I don't want Walmart. Their risk management, their loss prevention departments are getting hammered. And because the DA's office isn't doing enough about it because a lot of these people are informants for one. And... Also, property crimes are just not otherwise a priority for this administration or the police. Yeah, but those 
those stores aren't the best example because they have poor, poor standards around handling that. They have a hands-off. I, I know that Ross, I don't know about Target. I would assume Target does too, has a hands-off policy where I've, they I've, don't stop I've, anybody. I've seen one police report where Target stops someone. I've, I've seen a lot of police reports where Winco stops people, which is great. Well, Winco's <laughs> employee-owned, so they're a right. little bit, yeah, they're they're a little co-op, different. Yeah, co-op, um, yeah. And uh, the other one down there at the mall, uh, Kohl's, stops people. With a, with a vengeance, <laughs> with impact. Let's put it this way: <laughs> they tackle people, but and that's good. They sh- they should be entitled to do that. Um, but a lot of these stores, products are leaking out either way, and a lot of them just wait for the cops to pick the person up. Eventually, even if you tackle the person, you're calling the police. It's a petty theft. It could be a commercial burglary if they didn't have any money in their pocket. But the smart criminals are going to have some money in their pocket. And say, oh gee, I just forgot. It's going to be end up being a uh, plea bargain for a petty theft. Put them on probation. Slap on the wrist. They're right back in Coles doing it again. Okay. And so your solution would be for recidivists. I'm not saying that the limit. Do you have would be, a, a standard for that? Would it be a three it would, strike be, it would rule? Be, it would be a three, a three or four or five. You know, we'd have to think about that depending on the statistics. Do some analysis. Because that's that's. I don't know if I would say that's more serious than jail. But if they're if they own property here and then you you kick them out for hey, X number of years, that's pretty. If, if you're looking at a year and a half in the local county jail or three years stepping out of the county, which one you want to do? Yeah, I would not go to jail. <laughs> I would not go That's to jail. That's what I'm saying. Most people would say, okay, I'll take three years out of the county. Okay. Now, if we catch you back in the county for any reason without any more due process other than seeing a judge once, um, you've already agreed that you're going to do the maximum sentence. So it would keep them out for three years. Maybe that would teach them a lesson. If you're going to be here, you have to behave. Is there any evidence supporting that? Have any other counties done anything There's like that? There's not any um, empirical evidence supporting it as a deterrent, like there isn't any evidence uh, of any other things. Like death penalty doesn't actually... There's no empirical evidence that it actually deters anyone from committing murders, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's a pretty safe, <laughs> but, that's a pretty safe but, assessment. But, I, but I'm not even worried about it deterring. I think it just solves the problem for right now. For the, I'm not worried about deterring them in the future. I'm worried about creating a better quality of life for the people right now in Humboldt County. And to put a recidivist who's robbing everybody in the neighborhood all the time, constantly, put them out for three years of the community, hey, that's, that's a win for us. It makes a better quality of life. But couldn't you see a situation where it just... It just sends the problem somewhere else. Well, of course, it's sending the problem somewhere else. But as a consequence, they if they're they're they don't have as many um, networked criminals associates in other places. I'm assuming, right? I mean, one problem with with the jail here and putting people in jail is they build criminal contacts and they get out of prison and jail with more criminal statewide criminal contacts sometimes, and they're affiliated now with criminals. <laughs> yeah. So um, put them in an unfamiliar place. And, I mean, it's their choice. If they want to do the year and a half in jail rather than going stepping out of the county for three years, it's a wide open world. I would rather take three years out of the county than a year and a half in jail anytime. And guess what? It doesn't cost us anything. The taxpayer pays zero to put them out of the county. They're going to pay $150,000 to put them in jail. So it just makes fiscal sense. It makes immediate quality of life sense. It It's the choice. It's a better choice for the offender. They're happier, and it's consequential. They can't go visit their property or their mom or whoever else. They're going to have to have their mom come visit them. It Banishment, exile, um, exclusion, I like to call it. There is precedent for it with the Indian tribes. On the Indian, uh, on the books of federal Indian law, it's one of my backgrounds. It's federal Indian law. because so I was uh, Bear Rivers general counsel for six years. I, I worked for Dakota Plains and Pine Ridge. Um, the tribes exclude people all the time. Pine Ridge is a big area. It's a large geographic area out there, and they will exclude um, non-members, if they are causing a problem on the reservation, they simply exclude them. That's a very summary proceeding. They see a judge, they're identified, and they are excluded. But that would be non-members. That's non-members. It's do not they me- do that for any 
Not for members. I, well, it's questionable right now. I had a case like that recently uh, on habeas corpus to the federal court, and there's some case law that says at the Ninth Circuit that you can't um, exclude a member if you're uh, from their own reservation um, if it's affecting a substantial right, like if they have a, a house there or something like that. Um, and it's a little bit gray right now, but there's case law supporting that. I'm a believer in that, that, that tribes should not and cannot legally um, exclude their own members from their own reservation. Okay. But then would you be okay with excluding... Sure. If somebody's born and raised in Humboldt County, would you be okay with kicking them out of Humboldt County? Absolutely. What would be the difference? Because it's not citizenship in Humboldt County. It's just venue. I mean, you're a citizen of the United States. I yeah, but be, if I be kicking okay. them out of tribal land is basically the same as kicking them out of a county. Being a member in a tribe is akin to being a citizen of a country. So I, would be not, I wouldn't be okay with kicking them out of the United States because uh, that's their citizenship. You know, um, but I would certainly be uh, okay and with putting them out of Humboldt County. There's plenty. First of all, Humboldt County was originally part of Trinity County. That's the history of Humboldt County. It, it was carved out of Trinity. I didn't know that. It was carved out of Trinity County. I watched because someone asked me a question about, you know, why should we vote for you? The other two are natives to Humboldt County. And I said, well, geez, I'm a native Californian, but I'm not a native to Humboldt County. I'm a native to Hollywood. <laughs> I was born on Sunset Boulevard and grew up in Tahunga and Orange County, both. Uh, and so I looked at the history. I was like, well, what these, these distinctions we make in identity are sometimes just splitting hairs and sometimes they're significant. But I started looking back at the, how many counties were there originally in California? There were only like uh, 18 proposed and then 28 when, they, when the state became a state, when it reached, achieved statehood. And then it grew from there of them carving other counties out of the existing 28 counties. And so Humboldt uh, came out of Trinity as well as some of Delmar County were originally all Trinity County. But I mean... I, I don't know if these people would go just across the border and you would have the phenomena of border towns. Like, in, So in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, it borders Nebraska. And Pine Ridge is one of the last, if not the last, dry reservation in the United States. No alcohol allowed still. Even though it's not federal law, it's tribal choice. It's tribal government's choice. So there's this phenomena of uh, anyone who wants to drink has to go over there into Nebraska. So there's a border town full of bars then. <laughs> so I don't know if it would create uh, um, shanty towns of offenders who are living just across the Humboldt County line or not <laughs> in Trinity and Mendocino, but um, probably not because the, the lines that actually um, exist right now of those counties, there's nothing there. There's no towns there. They'd have to build a shanty town to stay there. So I, I would imagine some people would just find other places to go for the three years if we excluded them from the county for being a recidivist. And maybe when they came back, they'd be better behaved or more mature people. And we wouldn't have to pay for their uh, housing in the meantime. <laughs> Has any other county done this? Um, it's been proposed. Uh, yeah, actually, there's there's four states that have it on the books, technically. Um, but don't don't enforce they, it. They do enforce it. Um, uh, often it's, the problem is sometimes when it's enforced, it's done so in a discriminatory manner. You can't exclude someone based on race, religion, gender, things like that. And so some of the counties got in trouble for racially excluding people as a remedy, and there was no evidence they'd done it to any other person of other races. Right? I'm not proposing. I'm I'm proposing it straight based on recidivism. That's repeat offending. People who cannot seem to break their MO of stealing from stores, stealing from neighborhoods. I live in a neighborhood which I consider nice, but that is just just plumb full of, of thieves. And it's sad because Cutton's a nice place. I've been there 20 years. Um, and I've had $100,000 worth of stuff stolen from me, it seems like. I mean, literally. Just outrageous amounts of stuff. You can't Out of your house? Out of your front um, yard? Both. Both, yeah. I mean, they've stolen everything but my dignity and my <laughs> my integrity. I said, integrity is the one thing they can't steal from you. You have to give it away yourself. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so words to live by. Yeah. yeah. So, um, 
everything else. Um, I've had a car, a couple of cars stolen, recovered though, but they were damaged and just anything valuable that, that has been left out in the front. I mean, I, I grew up in a neighborhood where we lived uh, that you could leave your doors unlocked. Yeah, but those days yeah. are gone. Probably. I think it's pretty safe to say that those days are not coming back. Yeah, probably. You're right, because there's just more people in the world. When I was born in 1970, I think I calculated there were five people in my uh, nuclear family at that point, and we are now 15 or 16 and of the people still living. So we've tripled our own family. You imagine, you multiply that towards all the families out there. It's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot more people on the planet. <laughs> so I didn't even think about the racial component. I was thinking about the the homeless aspect. I could see that coming into play because my understanding is the homeless however you want to address that problem they do commit crime and are often repeat offenders mm -hmm. would you say that's a safe assumption to make right um but then, well um I so it's a little unfair uh, to single them out there's a lot of people with um, where you know storage units that <laughs> store their stolen stuff in storage and a lot of houses that have a lot of stolen property that we've seen documented in the news but that seems like a demographic you could say would be targeted Right. By this bill. Well, I think or by I, you putting that forward. When you say homeless, there's a category of people. There's homeless people on the streets, sleeping on the streets. Then there's homeless people that live at these trap houses or a variety of trap houses that kind of couch surf amongst them. Okay. So <laughs> I'm not sure if those are the people we're targeting or the, the true home. Most of the people I see that are homeless, homeless in the streets of downtown Eureka have mental illness. And that is a tragedy because that's existed since, I believe, Reagan uh, ended the funding for a lot of the mental health funding and people have been on the streets since then in the big cities and in Eureka now. Um, that is a social service problem. I don't want to criminalize those people. I don't want to criminalize sleeping on the sidewalk. So would so. you not kick them out of the county if they were no. repeat offenders? No, not for sleeping. Oh no. I can't criminalize homelessness. No. It would be thieves. But how do you, okay, how do you then address that problem? Because the homeless, that's a, that is a big problem. So, so what I think about the homeless um, problem is, is this. That it's probably an interagency thing, not necessarily DA's thing. Because remember, I'm not trying to use the DA's office and make another social service agency, right? The DA's office is for putting people in cages. It's the only office we have that can put a human in a cage. Look at it that way. All the other agencies can do what they want, social service, help, intervention, but they can't put people in cages if they need to be put in cages. <laughs> so let's give the social service cases back to DHSS, DHSS and to mental health and all the other agencies, doctor's offices. And let's keep the DA for, yeah, this human needs to be put in a cage. He's acting like an animal. Send him to the DA's office. Okay. Yeah, but what if they're, what if it's, you have a homeless guy who's struggling right. with mental health. And being violent or nonviolent? Nonviolent, but is continuing to break into businesses. Oh, he's, yeah. Well, I, how do we handle that? Th that is the same as everybody else. If he's So you stealing, would remove them from the county? Uh, well, if he's stealing, he would be given whatever the standard sentence up front, not probation. Uh, flat sentence, flat, uh, they call them terminal sentences in every case. Terminal sentences in every case. Give him a terminal sentence for the first couple. We'd have to decide what that recidivist line is. Um, recidivist line uh, could be three or five or whatever in between, right? Three, four, five. And when they hit that, yeah, I would, I would probably treat them. And I'm not saying we couldn't give them a referral for mental health if it's documented too, but we could, remember, it's offering them. I'm not putting them out of the county. I'm offering them. That guy is probably going to take the jail option because he's homeless, okay? <laughs> There's people in this county that commit crimes just to get housed in winter, if you didn't realize that. I've spoken to some of those people who said, I went and stole something so I could get a spot at the jail because it's cold out. You know? That is so crazy. <laughs> that happens in Humboldt County, believe it or not. So I think that homeless guy would, if I said, you get three years in the jail or you get a year and a half, I'm sorry, one and a half years in the jail or three years out of the county, he would say, I'll take the one and a half in the jail. <laughs> but that doesn't help with keeping 
the jail overhead down. That's one hundred six thousand dollars. Well, but remember, your premise was that that person is a repeat offender of property crimes. He yeah. needs to be in jail. Okay. He needs to be in jail, or he needs to be out of the county. He's, he continues to steal stuff from people. He's a thief, chronic thief. So would where where do we draw the line for what is non-deserving of jail? I know we said drug charges. It um, sounds like non- firearm charges. Yeah, I think might so. As well the categories I have are, are there's non-possessory. Non-possessory, I mean, there's non-possessory crimes, it's possessory, mere possession crimes. So, and you look, look at it in terms of harm and risk of harm. There's reg- behavior we regulate because it's harmful. So a person A strikes person B in the face. That's harmful. Then there's things we regulate because there's a risk of harm, meaning a felon in possession of a bullet. So has a shotgun shell in his pocket. Oh, what are we going to do with this person? He's a felon. Well, what's his background? We don't even look at that. We just say he's a felon in possession of a bullet. He's got a 16.23. It's a wobbler. It could be a misdemeanor or a felony. But if it's a wobbler, he's going to get six months local. If it's, uh, if it's not, if you give him the felony, it's going to be 16.23 choice. What is a wobbler? A wobbler is something that could be a, a, fe- a felony or a misdemeanor at the, at the prosecutor's discretion, which I think is outrageous and should be done away with too. But that's They beyond. call it a wobbler? They call it a wobbler. And then a wobblet is a uh, infraction to misdemeanor. Could go either way there at the discretion of the DA. I don't think the DA should have that discretion. You won't see me wavering on things like that. It's either going to be a misdemeanor or ammunition, I think, should be a misdemeanor, generally. Um, Ammunition without a firearm. Yeah, ammunition with no firearm and a person with a history who's a a felon or... Now, it's not just felons in possession. There's 23 categories of restricted people in the state of California that cannot have guns or ammo. And everyone always, always just says felon in possession, but there's 22 other categories of people that can't have... People that are um, mentally some some certified mentally disabled, for example. Um, I do. Uh, I want. I want to continue about guns because yeah, I do so want to get your take so, on that. So the guns, but going back to yeah. the original thing, where do you draw that line? So where do you draw the line? Drugs, misdemeanor drug charges. Yeah. It sounds like are passed. Mm-hmm. It sounds like some firearm, firearm or at least ammunition. Yeah. Or you would do firearms as well if they if their if their history is nonviolent. Nonviolent. Okay. You do you confiscate it and you give them. You know you let them just be, but if they build up, if they're a recidivist, then, then you might consider uh, prosecution or exclusion because they can't keep repe- repeatedly violating the law. So all nonviolent crimes, you would try to keep them out of the jail initially? Absolutely. Because, because, and this is the reason, because if we, unless we want to build a whole new facility, spend a lot more capital you know, down on a, on, a, on a new facility. So let's say we're dealing with the existing facility. I want to keep that full, but of the right people. I want to keep that full. I want to give violent criminals, uh, people who commit domestic violence, for example, I want to give them longer sentences. But what about property crime? Where does that Property fall? crimes, I would definitely want to give them longer sentences. Up Isn't front. that a nonviolent crime? Um, it's, it, 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 and it's not nonviolent. We're dealing with harm versus risk of harm. They've harmed someone. They've stolen their property. Oh, that's so that, harm. that falls into harm. That's, okay. that's definitely harm. If you steal my car, that's harm to me. <laughs> if you steal my my kid's power wheel battery out of his power wheel. That's, that was happening in my neighborhood a while back, chronically. Um, that's harm to me. I they were stealing batteries? Batteries out of power wheels to go ch- turn them in for 10 bucks a piece. And every kid's power wheel in the neighborhood was, had no battery. It was ridiculous. And so, yeah, that's harm to me. That's harm to my kid. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you need to be in jail after, you know. I would say with property crimes, there's no... That, that, that person needs to be in jail. And, and the, Property crime is black and white for you. Absolutely black and white. That's what's been neglected. And that is also the category overlaid with the, the informant reward system because those are the category of people that are being let off for information on drug cases so that the police can make a profit on forfeitures. The forfeitures, if you look at the attorney general report on forfeitures, uh, asset forfeitures for last year, they said that they seized $1.5 million worth of assets. They were only allowed to keep 
I said dispersed was 380000 So roughly three out of four dollars that they took was illegally taken from people. <laughs> it had to be returned. It was not distributed back locally. So, I mean, they're wrongfully taking people's stuff. The incentive is there for them to choose, to, to prioritize cases in which they can make money. And it also allows them the ability to self-fund their task forces. Um, this is a problem nationwide, by the way, without any oversight from the taxpayers or from the local government because they're doing it off of forfeiture laws. Now, the DA only gets a 10% cut of those forfeitures. The local law enforcement gets 64%, somewhat 62 to 64% of that take. 1% goes to the District Attorneys Association of California, and the rest goes to the General Fund of California from the DOJ. So it's, it's, it, the assets uh, uh, are put in a, a fund of the Attorney Generals and then redistributed after the conviction, if they achieve a conviction. Okay? And then the civil forfeiture law um, is a separate proceeding, um, but if it's over $40,000, they don't need a conviction. If it's under $40,000, they need a criminal conviction to keep any of it. So it's it's a gray area of law that's open. I didn't know that the DA's office got any money from that. Oh, they're the ones prosecuting the, yeah, the, the DA's office is responsible for the petitions uh, for forfeiture that people have to file a claim of objection. So they do a, a, a drug raid. They take all your money, your, your house, your car, whatever they're going to take, and then they give you a notice of forfeiture. And then a person has to do a claim opposing forfeiture and fight that out civilly. It runs parallel to the criminal case. So, but, but this is a problem nationwide. There's been a lot of legislation lately. In fact, in California, they raised the limit from twenty-five to 40000 where they need a conviction to keep your stuff um, because it, it just creates the wrong incentive for law enforcement. They're supposed to be um, ensuring domestic tranquility. If you want to put in preambulatory terms from the Constitution, there's only six purposes of our government, okay? Um, form a more perfect union, um, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for common defense, promote general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. Okay, and that's the one being neglected, I think, securing the blessings of liberty in a lot of cases, civil rights violations, um, unchecked police power, um, and informants that are being used as if this was Russia in, in the 80s, a KGB where neighbors are turning against neighbors, and it's all not transparent that these people are committing crimes getting left off their crimes to, to commit more crimes and they're busting other people because there's a profit incentive of the police. You have to take profit incentives away from government, especially the police. Any institution of this government, any institution that has the authority to use lethal force and the ability to get, or the, they're in a position to get away with murder, factually because of presumptions and, and um, cultural prejudices, should be regulated by civilians should have some oversight from the general public or the civilian public that is not police. They shouldn't be regulating themselves. Internal affairs, the police departments rarely find that they're one of their own did anything wrong, right? That's just that's the way it goes. It's, it's a fraternity. <laughs> it is literally a fraternal order of police. And I'm not against the police. I just think that as the president is the commander-in-chief, who is a civilian commander-in-chief over the military, that was the same reason. We should have civilian oversight of our police departments because it can use lethal force on, force on us. So. You seem like you, at least idea-wise, have a bone to pick with a lot of different areas. Yeah. Yeah. The system's broken. It is broken. <laughs> a bone to pick is one way. I, I just really what it is is I want to see what the Founding Fathers intended in my lifetime. I want to see America figure it out in my lifetime, really. I want to see the reconciliation between we are the most incarcerated country in the world, 
more people than Syria, more people than China. We have more people in China in jail in absolute numbers than they have, and they have four times as many people as we do. <laughs> we have four times as many people per capita than Russia does at this point, okay? So we're the most incarcerated, but not in the top 10 of public safety and not in the top 10 of political rights and civil liberties either. Um, so why are you running? Do you think that you can make progress in all of those areas? Are you hoping to... I think I can make progress in all those areas you think overnight. You can? Overnight, absolutely. Because again, I mean, I've been working the system for a while and um, I represented a lot of people. Some I've, I've done two murder cases where people were falsely accused um, and they were cleared of the charges. I've been, I'm being prosecuted myself right now. And that was the inspiration. That's exactly the reason people should vote for me. People say, why should we vote for you? You've got a criminal case pending. That's it. my case. If you see the facts of it, the abuses involved, the unreliability of the informants, the fact that it was started by political lobbying of Rex Bone in the police report. It says that they politically lobbied for an investigation of me. It doesn't say that there were calls who, from the community. Who politically lobbied? Uh, Against Unnamed you. people through Rex Bone's office. Now, if you call your legislature, your county supervisor is a leg local legislator. Uh, if you call him, you are by definition lobbying the government, not making a criminal report. <laughs> You're lobbying your local elected official. Had any police re reports been made about your I looked residence? at the calls for service. I looked at the calls for service in and around that date, before that date. There was one. It was from my house to enforce a restraining order my spouse made against someone else. Okay. There were no other... Reports a calls for service legitimate to the sheriff's department uh, for cutting that for that area of cutting uh, the prelim that the, the uh, officer said that it was a high crime area that's why he was patrolling my area this one time um, as opposed to Walnut Street I said cutting in general he said no Cedar Street that's a completely false fraudulent statement it, Cedar Street that era had no almost no calls Walnut Street naturally had a lot more calls okay it, we gotta we gotta pause for a second yeah. start this from the beginning, because this is a key aspect mm -hmm. of your campaign, whether you want it to be or not. This yeah. Is, this no, I make. Yeah, I want it to be. I want it to be. I wouldn't be running if it wasn't for the fact that they try. They're trying this against me. Because that's what started it. That's what inspired me to run in the first place. And I think the reasons, the facts of my case, are the reason that I should be voted in because they are outrageous government abuse um, of authority. Okay, so lay out the scene for me. This is back in February Fe yeah. of 2020. Yes. There's a raid on your house. Over right. on Cedar Street, mm -hmm. you are found to be in possession of meth. There is um, wait, no. There's there's drugs in a bag in my office. What was in my pocket was not a usable quantity of anything. It was just a piece of trash, literally. It's, it's, it but it was it was meth in that bag. In I don't know pocket. if they tested that. It was a bag. It was a bag that I had picked up um, in the street. And, and so it, it was no usable quantity. You could see it in the photo. If you look to the right of the photo, there's this, there's a bag that looks like it has nothing in it. It's just halfway cut off the photo. I think that's the one. They, don't, they, haven't, they haven't given us all the discovery in the case after two years, which is another gripe and reason that I'm running, is they can't even find the videotape from my DVR that is on the property receipt that they took. They can't even find that. They won't give us that. They're saying they can't locate it. Okay, okay. So <laughs> so, we got to set the scene. Yeah. For people that don't know right. the story, because I do want to talk about that right. as well. There are drugs, firearms. There's none in the house. Yeah, they're at the no a storage unit and cutting mini storage. But yeah. no firearms in your property? No. And in my storage unit, though. Yes. Your storage unit. Separate and Xanax bars at your house. Xanax bars, heroin, scales, all in the and same. Meth. And meth. And, uh, and this is and heroin. This is your house, and this also doubles as your office. In my office. They found a bag of drugs and, and, and some scales in a bag in my office. 
Okay, it is at the top of the stairs. It is not hidden. It's in plain view. I'm not sure who, what kind of drug dealer holds keeps their stash at the top of the stairs in the middle of the room. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But um, and there's Suboxone in there too, in a bottle. The only indicia in that bag has one name on it, Shelley Aubrey. And uh, do the police follow up? You think they usually say indicia? There was indicia of this person, right? Do they follow up on that indicia? No, they don't call her at all. They didn't call Shelley Aubrey at all. I've now met Shelly Aubrey because I tracked her down to, for that reason, and because I didn't know her from Adam, yeah, I didn't know who she was. Um, her statement is that she um, left that bag in a car with the person who was also arrested at my house uh, just the day before, and that she um, was in a car with that person, left the bag, and she knows that person. She hangs out with that person all the time. Obviously, it belongs to that person. Um, and it was just at your house. She, that person was at my house. That person gave me a thousand dollar retainer because she said she needed my advice on a case and I... and so you you and your partner sarah carroll were charged felony charges yeah. selling drugs maintaining a drug house and selling prescription drugs right yeah sales case. they think i'm a heroin dealer which is outrageous because they claim to have 10 informants over the course of the year in my house none of which ever said I was a heroin dealer, none of which ever saw any heroin sales in my house. Um, none of them claimed that I was a heroin dealer. So how did they suddenly, they came in on the theory that I was a firearms dealer. They told me when they came in, you're under, uh, this is a warrant for firearms uh, sales and conspiracy to commit firearms sales with two other locations. There were four locations in this warrant, same warrant, four locations. All four yours? Uh, or one, was just your my house, house story, my storage probably. unit, uh, a client's uh, house and an, and a the client's uh, client of mine's father's house in in Ridgewood, which I've never been to. I've never stepped foot in that house. Okay, that was the house that the paper had the picture. Most of the guns were from their house. The illegal assault weapon, the half pound of heroin was found over there. I've never been to that house. I'm not saying that my client wasn't um, a drug dealer. I represent many criminals in the or alleged criminals in the county. Okay, he wasn't even present at the house. But I've never been to that house. Ever stepped foot in it? Okay. Um, I don't know what in his, what's in his dad's safe. Half pound of heroin. Now, let's before we go forward there, I want you to look at the resolution so far. Six people arrested that day under that warrant. Two of them who were already uh, felons, either on federal probation, one was a strike felon on state probation, weren't even charged, even though they were found in possession of something. Okay, um, Two of them um, were given misdemeanors, the one that left the, the planted the bag of drugs in my office, and the other one is um, the one in Ridgewood, which... Uh, had a half pound of heroin and 40, 30 firearms, including assault weapons and, and stolen firearms. Those two people got misdemeanors with no prelim. They were offered misdemeanors with no, without having to go through a prelim. So you have two non-prosecutions, two misdemeanors. That leaves Sarah and myself. We have not been made an offer in two years, and we're still looking at seven felonies. Even though uh, the other people had more uh, culpability, more drugs, um, illegal weapons. I mean, actually, there was a, a half pound of heroin and a handgun same, found in the same safe at the house in Ridgewood. He was offered, he was given a misdemeanor without a prelim. Why are we still pending felony charges with no, they haven't even made us a felony offer, let alone a misdemeanor offer. They haven't made us any offers to settle. <laughs> it's a political prosecution. My friend, Brian McBeth, who was one of the ones arrested, he was simply leaving my house. He didn't ever bring drugs to my house. He had them in his car. Um, and he was on federal felony uh, probation. They uh, didn't prosecute him at all, and he had a half uh, a half ounce of methamphetamine in his car. So, but he, that never came into my house. He was but simply was picking Brian up. Was Brian the one? Was he the felon that you previously represented? Um, I don't know. I never represented uh, Brian. No. What? 
He he left. Haberman. His, uh, he, Kevin Haberman is yeah. He Known was my felon client. was yes. arrested at your house. No, he wasn't at my house. At your house. No, he was never found that day. He was not at my house or his father's house. But he alleged that he was storing guns. Uh, and it, and at your not place. he didn't. Uh, an informant did allege that. An, an unnamed informant alleged that um, he sometimes. Actually, if you look at the affidavit, it's 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 third hand information. It's Tomlin saying that Couch said that an informant said. Okay. Tomlin being Matt one of Tomlin, the officers. Yeah, yeah. Matt, Detective Tomlin says that Couch says that some unnamed informant says that um, Michael sometimes stores. Uh, guns for Kevin Haberman at his house. So it's third, uh, third-hand information. This is coming in through an affidavit that goes to a judge. Completely unreliable if it's too... It's, it's, it violates all the case law. I mean, you're supposed to have the informant in the judge's chamber so the judge can assess their reliability right there. That's how the original informant case law came out. The judge was assessing the reliability themselves, right? Let alone it being an affidavit of an affidavit of a person that they say was doing it for the betterment of the community. I know who that informant is. I figured it out from the dates. I'm not going to say his name over the air, but that person was not doing it for the better betterment of the community. They were pulled over on 1123 uh, in front of the zoo and they had no license. They had no uh, tags in their car, no insurance and, and were in possession of some heroin. And so it wasn't for the betterment of the, of the community that they said that's the only person it could be because the person told me they were pulled over that day, and they know Kevin and my, myself both um, pretty well. But um, I'm not going to say his name, but that's what that information comes from. That person was let off of all those crimes, so it wasn't for the better from the community. So you think he was <laughs> coerced into doing that? I think words were put in his mouth because someone, the officer will say, well, uh, does Michael have firearms? Well, yeah. The answer is yeah. Does, does Kevin have firearms? Yeah. Uh, does, does Michael store his firearms? Now, what does the his refer to? Kevin or mine? It would be Kevin storing uh, at well, your house. T- technically, by the Queen's English, yes. <laughs> it would be Kev- does, if he says, "Does Michael store? Does Michael have firearms stored?" Yes. Does Kevin have firearms stored? Yes. Does 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 Michael sometimes store his firearms? Does that? Well, actually, it would be my. Oh, the, the, because the, it's ambiguous. The question asks if I store my firearms, okay, and it's taken as in the affidavit, Michael stores Kevin's firearms. That's how this goes down. There's three yeses on the side of the street from a nervous guy who thinks he's going to jail. Is that how it was phrased or this is just your assumption that's, of the that's what it That's what it says in the police report. That's what the police report, if you look at it, it could easily be that. It's just like, well, the question is totally vague. I mean, it's like, do you say he has firearms, he has firearms, does Michael sometimes store his firearms? Does that refer to Michael store Michael's firearms or Michael store Kevin's firearms? At his house, because I never stored Kevin's firearms at my house. I didn't store my own firearms. At That's my house. actually how it was phrased in the document. That we don't know because Couch's affidavit isn't available. This is a, an affidavit of an affidavit of a conversation that occurred. <laughs> but that's as far as I could tell. It could have, yeah, it, it probably was. So were the firearms at the storage unit yours? The firearms at the storage unit were mine. That I was all storing. registered. Yeah, well, they were registered. I was actually trying to keep another client unrelated in compliance because he couldn't have them. The heirloom firearms that he's trying to pass on um, from his dad to his grandson. His dad's nine. His dad's dead now, but his um, passed away. But he was ninety years old. Um, question of competence. Couldn't even get an affidavit to transfer him because question of competence, right? So they were basically waiting for an executor to pass them on when he passed away to his son. Um, they're heirloom firearms, about ten of them. I had three firearms of my own. None of them were Ill- illegal firearms. None of them were stolen. None of them were loaded. I couldn't even access them after seven p.m. I'm the model of gun ownership, responsible gun ownership. I had them at a separate u- facility, locked down, without anything illegal. There was nothing illegal in my storage unit, nothing. And they took all the firearms, um, but I've never been charged with a firearm violation. What about the heirloom 
firearms. Those are still with the, that belong to the client. They're still with the uh, sheriff's department. Were those all? Those legal were all legal. Yeah, there were rifles. And are shotguns. you allowed to do that? Well, yeah. Why not? I mean, I'm allowed to entrust hold client but he property. Could, yeah. He couldn't have them because he was a felon. Because he couldn't have them at his house. His dad lives with him at his house. Uh, he can't have them because of yes, he has a pot conviction way back in the day, I believe. Um, so felony conviction. Yeah, it's a felony conviction for marijuana, which he hasn't restored uh, his rights. And there might there, yeah, that was the only thing. There might have been a restraining order involved. I'm not sure. I can't remember now. But I, I do know that his dad lives with him. And it was a gray area because they could be locked in the house and he could not have access to them. But he didn't want to skate that thin line because he had a bad divorce going on. Um, so he said, could you just hold these for me for now? So I was holding them. It's, it's client property. It's in trust with an attorney. There's nothing wrong with that ethically. Yeah, but if it's client property that the client's not legally allowed to own, well, it's, it's is that a gray it's, area? It's the client's <laughs> dad's property, but I'm doing it to, to make the client in a more defensible position in case, you know, there's a question of why he has firearms at his house. So, um, so the dad wasn't even competent to create that relationship with you. So it's the client is the property owner. The firearms belong to his father. He has the care of his father because no one else does, you know, because he's 90. <laughs> and so, um, we thought it was the most prophylactic, you know, best preventive measure for him getting in trouble or having a question why there's firearms at his property. So it was, it was in all good intentions, the road to hell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but good I could see how that would get ethically ambiguous because my understanding is that if you're charged with a felony, you can no longer own a firearm. If you're, or have access if you've to been a convicted, if you've been convicted of a felony, yes. which he was of a pot felony way back when. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's. True, but it's it's but that one in that particular case, the law has changed, uh, and unlike the Prop Forty Seven on the drugs being reduced to misdemeanor, marijuana. Um, if you have a felony marijuana conviction from the past, you can get your firearms restored. It's, it's a little gray on the implementation of that, whether you need a petition to do so or whether it just automatically happens. But the, the legislative intent on the marijuana decriminalization, I believe it was Prop 64 or something like that, um, that intended to restore people's civil rights to the fullest extent. They made a point in the legislative journals about that. And so they're not going after you for any firearms charge because no, i read an article that said yeah and then another one that said they weren't no, they, we were never in the original complaint we were never charged with any firearms because there weren't any firearms violations all my guns were locked away separate none were stolen or assault weapons and there were no firearms at my house whatsoever uh, i think they were hoping they told me that they they came in that day because they were hoping that there was a firearm there they heard there was a firearm i had a pellet gun replica of a six hour firearm it's a pellet gun uh anyone with any firearms training could look at the barrel and tell you that's a pellet gun it's not a it's not a a real firearm. Okay, so they have um, bad informants. <laughs> Sometimes gave bad information. They were hoping to find any amount of drugs with any firearm, and that becomes a felony automatically. And it's very hard to defend. That combination. Yeah, does. that combination is automatic felony. No matter how, what the quantity, regardless of intent to sell, it's just bam, it's a felony. They had been watching your house for a few months though prior. Oh yeah. So let me give you the background on that. So so first of all, you have DA investigators looking at my house, which I find really offensive because DA investigators should be preparing for trial for attorneys. They should be post-arrest preparation for trial. Okay, okay, back up one step further. This had all been started off by somebody calling, I'm guessing Rex, Rex Bone, Bone, saying there's a lot of activity at your house. Yeah. A lot of people coming and going, not staying very long. Mm. I read sure. some quote that was 25 cars a day. Uh, yeah. Well, you remember they had 10 informants coming at me too. So did that. So I asked this, them, did you this exclude is, the 10 informants? This is what starts that. That's supposedly, yeah. That's what officially they say. So and so it. somebody called Rex and Rex notified. 
The um, DA's office, next, the police? Rex went to Matt Tomlin, and Matt Tomlin started an investigation. It was, it was a lobbying effort for an investigation. And Matt uh, Tomlin works for? At, for Drug Task Force, Sheriff's Drug Department. Task Force. And him uh, and uh, Bernstein and a couple of the people who watched my house, um, they sent people to my house to attempt to buy firearms. Abishan did that. He let Trevor Gibney out of jail on a PRCS hold, which they never do. Another discount of a criminal who is couldn't possibly have passed moral background check as an informant because he has a he's a puppy killer, he has a animal cruelty conviction, and he has a um, car burglary conviction. These are convictions. So I'm, I'm no risk of defamation here. He's he's a car burglar and a attempted puppy killer. <laughs> he threw a puppy off a bridge and it was rescued. It was in the paper a long time that's, ago. That's pretty dark, though. That's pretty dark. So how does he pass a moral background check to be an informant, a reliable informant? They let him out of jail on a PRCS hold. Abishan does this, who works for the DA, comes to my house, tries to buy a, fu- buy a firearm from me on the theory that he's a known felon, supposedly, to me. Um, I didn't know he was a felon until afterwards. But, um, and that if I sell him a firearm, then that's a violation of law, selling a firearm to a felon, right? Um, so Did you do that? No. I, he asked me if I had any firearms for sale. I said, I don't have any firearms for sale. He goes, well, do you have firearms? I said, yeah, I store my firearms. I'm storing them from somebody else too. And Well, I really need one. I, I really, could you help me find one? And I was like, I, I, that's not what I do. But I said, I'll call the person and see if she could help you. And I called someone. He was just a stranger at this point? No, he had been introduced to me um, as needing legal advice on something. And, and his, uh, his, his minor legal advice it didn't even seem like it was much of anything. But it was like a pending case or something like that. Most of these people get in my door because they say they want legal advice. Yeah, and it's kind of hard because this is your house and also your yeah, office. So yeah. setting that line as, because, as someone trying to interpret the story right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a, and and that if if I'm guilty of anything is it's, it's of having a home office a home office. That's what I'm guilty of <laughs> because that is probably not an ethical mistake. It's just a practicality mistake. I think it's just and I never intended to be a full time practicing law anyway. It's just part time practicing because I. I was raising my son. I, you know, he's at the age where I want to spend a lot of time with him, and um, so, so I. Was, but back to this, yeah. their their approach, try the to approach, buy firearms. The Did they approach and try to buy drugs at no, any point? No, no drugs. No, no, just no. firearms. Oh, the, now the, the Tomlin said at the prelim that he did has someone come into my house during the course of the year or something and t- attempt to buy heroin, and that it was not successful. That I was present, and that but no heroin was sold. So where's that discovery? I want that discovery in that tape. He said it was a wired informant. I want the wired tape showing that I specifically said, I don't sell heroin. <laughs> I'm how not long, a heroin dealer. How long were they watching your house for? They claim the original newspaper said a year. But a year? The, the police report only spar- supports back to like November before the February. Now, November is, of 2019. Yes. Now, here's the weirdest thing. One of the weirdest things is my booking number, if you look at February 4th, 2020, is a 2019 booking number. That number is generated by the booking system when someone is arrested. They reserved in... Sometime in 2019, and presumably de- December after the 9th, when Tomlin had this conversation with Rex Bone, they reserved a booking number for me and my spouse and Mr. Haberman. They basically prejudged our arrest. And when we left L.A. for Christmas and were conveniently, uh, un- inconveniently unavailable to them for a raid, um, they had already generated those numbers. So they just they had to bust me to fulfill that those ghost numbers. Wait, so they did that back in November? Back in back in December 9th is when he had the conversation with Rex Bone. December 9th. So sometime in t- 2019, my point is, they prejudged us and created booking numbers reserved for us because there's no one else in 2020 in the booking sheets 
that has a 2019 booking number. Okay, so walk me through booking numbers because I don't understand that. The booking number is generated automatically by the jail system. It's not a police investigative number. The police investigation number is probably a 2019 number. Booking at, at time of warrant, at time of booking. intake, at time, time of, of booking. booking. You are arrested. You, they, they presume they have probable cause to arrest you and you're in the jail and you're being booked. You're given a computer assigned booking number. It's sequential. I have a 2019 booking number in February of 2020. I don't think they thought I would look at that, but that that exists in the official documents. They prejudged; they were preordained, pre-manufactured to arrest. It, it was reserved for me. Let's put it that way. They were going to arrest me no matter who said what at the property because they had this informant plant those drugs there. And she walked away and said they weren't hers. The warrant was seven days old. Okay, the warrant that they used for the, the raid they in, used February. in February was seven days old. If I was such a danger, imminent threat to society that they told the judge, why didn't they come in immediately? They waited seven days. They came in three minutes after that person that planted the drugs walked into my house three minutes after seven days of no action on a warrant they they watched me pick up my son alone that day at 2 p.m i wasn't hard to find i was alone i picked up my son the normal protocol is to catch someone when they leave the house pull them over search them in their car that way you isolate them from destroying any evidence back at the house right and you take them back to their own raid and then you search the house right they didn't do that they had the opportunity to they followed me to washington school and back didn't bust me. They had the warrant in hand. And then they decided to come at 6.30 at night when that person came with my spouse. She had requested a ride from my spouse to come talk to me and gather up some documents that we'd... She just hired me two days before. Said she needed to retain me for an availability retainer, which I should have been suspicious of. Because you rarely get an availability retainer. It just says, I need you available in case I have legal problems. Only one I've ever had in my life. A thousand bucks just down to to be available to her in, some, in case something happens. So I'm, now I'm feeling obliged to let her into my house. Sarah's feeling obliged to pick her up, gives her a ride to the DMV. Um, she is attempting to apparently uh, register a uh, Harley Davidson that turns out to be stolen, we find out. Okay, wait, times again, because we're get, I want to yeah. keep this in order right, right. so yeah. that I can understand yeah. it. So they're watching your house. They're watching. Well, they had been sending people to buy firearms and drugs all year. How many right. times? Nev- I don't know, but we never sold any firearms and drugs. That affidavits don't say we did. But then they hit this person who they decide they're going to have come in and put these drugs down. Um, and this is the person who had that availability Availability retainer. retainer. And so she picks her up, brings her to my house, and she puts the drugs down. So we're on – so this is February 4th yeah. now. She, she comes into my office. And s- gives you that retainer or had already she, supplied it? Two days it. before she had supplied it. And so that's why we felt obliged to go give her a ride and, and speak to her. And she just shows up at your house? No, Sarah gave her a ride. Your, she Sarah, asked Sarah to give her a partner. ride. Your mm-hmm. partner. She asked her to give her a ride to the DMV. And then she said she swung back by my house to get the documents she left there two days before. There were some documents regarding this dispute she's having with PG. Give her a ride to the deep where Sarah and this this lady that this lady Tracy, Tracy Nichols were they friends? Yeah, they, well, we had met. Uh, she was a client, but we're friendly with our clients. Client for two days? No, she. I represented her of record in Trinity County um, on a on her mother's uh, estate, and but that case was completed mostly. So she because that's kind of weird to just call and give somebody a ride to the DMV. Out of the blue, right? Right. Well, she she's from High and Palm, and she had wrote she had wrecked her car. She she had been down here with her BMW. She would wrecked her car just days before. This is what makes me suspicious about it. She wrecked her car. Says she had police contact with wrecking her car. Was under the influence of something, but the police didn't arrest her. So then, a couple of days later, she needs a ride to the DMV, um, trying to register some other vehicles. And she just retained me. She had literally wrecked her car since the time she left, giving me that retainer. She wrecked it on that way. And that trip back to the hotel. So now she's stuck down in Eureka because she's from High and Palm. Did you notice her under the influence of anything at that time? Uh, when she left my house? Yeah. Yes, I did. 
And I tried to get her to stay, and I, I made a place for her to sleep on the bed. And I said, you need to just stay here for a while. And I went back upstairs because I was working on something. And next thing you know, I look up, and her car's taken off, and she took, she took off. Was it alcohol? Was it I have no idea. Marijuana? I think it was pills. I think it was pills. pills. Yeah, I think there was some sort of uh, groggy pill. I'm not really familiar with pills. Is that how you know that she was under the influence of something when she wrecked her car? Or was that that's, in a police report? That's what I, I that's how I know yes that's how, that's I how know. you know so it wasn't because, in any official document saying that um no I, there's some official document saying she wrecked her car that day but uh, not and her word of mouth said she wrecked the car that day she told me that she did but, but no indication of why in those documents um, right yeah no why because she she walked away she left the scene of an accident which is also a crime and that and, was and then she said she came back when she had sobered up and interfaced with the police that were at her vehicle and then they didn't arrest but is her. this is this is there anywhere public that says that, or this is just coming um, from you? Two days before there should be police records. Yeah, that's, I asked them for this discovery. I said, well, where's the discovery? There's an incidents. There are incidents near the Red Lion Hotel uh, that are similar to that. I can't identify which one it is, but that happened two days before the raid. So then she gets a ride from Sarah to come get the documents that she left when she left in her stupor. Okay, pause. So the police didn't charge her with anything? No. They just let her yes. go? Okay. So then Sarah picks her up, takes her to the DMV. She tries to register a vehicle. The police are called by the DMV because she's trying to register a stolen Harley Davidson. Okay, you can listen. That's on the scanner. You can listen on the scanner archive. Um, and they then somebody called S4. S4 says 1020. What is S4? S4 is a, a, a code for some, it's a, a personnel, some personnel of the sheriff's department. I'm not sure who it is. Okay, it says S4. I, I, I think it's in my prelim transcript too, but it's, they said S4 says 1020 on the DMV investigation. 10, 1020 code is cancel the DMV investigation. And they say, we'll send an officer down to tell you why. Because there's already CHP. Sarah's at the CHP. Sarah's at the DMV. She said several CHP show up and handle interface with Tracy. They don't arrest her for the stolen Harley Davidson registration. They let her go again. And so there was some sort of cancellation of that investigation um, by someone named S4 who wasn't at the scene, but was sending someone to tell them why. That's all in the scanner. To tell... The, the officers there why to cancel the investigation and that that's all in the public that's center. a little weird that's really suspicious right and i'm going well who is this as for if he is part of my my raid then that's just a open and shut thing they need and did you know this was occurring no i didn't when it happened, this. No. i was i was at home with my son and brian Macbeth's daughter who he left there because he said he was going to go do something i don't know what he did but he got arrested for it after that and he left his daughter at my house because it was safe and because there was nothing, there was nothing going on there. It was just me and my son, and he left his daughter there to play with my son for a couple hours while he went and did something. And uh, that's when, he, that's why he was at my house. He was picking up his daughter, walked outside to his car, and before he could drive away, the police swooped. Okay, on. so backing up, so they leave the DMV. No problems, I'm guessing. No they problems. had to leave the the police and everything. Leave there. the motorcycle. The motorcycle. They didn't have the motorcycle, but they were trying to register it, so they didn't arrest her for that. She. But she had said she was trying to register it. So you'd think they would arrest her for trying to register her. But they uh, don't. So they, they both don't. leave. Right. So that's two crimes that I know she committed, including the, the, the smash BMW the two years before. They come straight to the house. This is now 630. And the raid happens three minutes after they walk in on a seven-day-old warrant. Now, note. you're So who's, who's at the house? Uh, at that point, just me, uh, my son, is at the we're the only ones at the house. The other little girl had been right. picked up. Yeah, she was. They were. I thought they were long gone. They were been in their car and they were detained at their car. But I thought Brian was gone already okay. from his car. So his, his little girl, he picked her up, got her in the car. Tracy comes with Sarah and another friend named Ashley. They walk in the house. I say, "Who's here with you?" 
Tracy and Ashley, I never saw Ashley. She was in the bathroom. I, and Tracy walked up with Sarah, and I remember exactly verbatim. It's Tracy saying, uh, you, want, um, you want to buy, she said, do you know anyone that wants to buy some Xanax? And my response was, I don't even know what Xanax does <laughs> to anything. I don't even know what that, that does. I have no, and, then, and then the next word I said was, it looks like a raid, you know, because I looked at my video camera, and there, there's all these police pulling up to my house. I'm like, what the heck? So I walked down. To secure my son, because you know, so they don't shoot him or something like that. Because they pull women, so before they pull they, guns on women and children. Before usually. they enter, you see them on your security cameras. Yeah, I see them on. Yeah, of course, I saw them pulling up. I thought actually they were um, arresting someone on the street that I saw across the street. I said, "Oh, that person's in trouble across the street." Next time I see them coming to my door, well, they can't get in my door. My door is um, blocked. The front door. We were using the side door, so um, I didn't barricade it right then. I put. I we had reconfigured the living room. So that um, people would use the side door because all of our heat leaves the front door. The fireplace is in the front room. And if you use that front door, all the heat flies out. So, so the front door was front door was barricaded. Was, yeah, the couch was in front of it like from earlier like that day or that week, something like that. And so um, they come in. The door was ajar already because Tracy and Sarah also had tried to go to the front door. They'd been gone for a while. I, I think I reconfigured the living room that day. So they come, they go, what's wrong with the front door? I said, I reconfigured the front room so that people use the side Sarah leaves it open, just barely a jar, this like two inches. She goes, okay, so the video camera that they took from me would show them coming to the front door, not able to get in, come around the side door. Would it show okay. you rearrange? Do you have any inside no, that's, cameras? No, not inside. No, but that it was it was before the cops. We even knew the cops were there. So, but the, it was that day you decided yeah, to yeah, rearrange. Yeah, it was room. that day because Sarah tried to get in too. Yeah, Sarah and Tracy both. So my my videotape of the front door should show Sarah and Tracy and Ashley come to the front door. Tracy with the backpack full of drugs, <laughs> and. Try to get in. I say, just go around the side. So we go around the side. They come in. Three minutes later, the police try to come in the front door. I had no idea the police were behind them, obviously. So you were up in your office. Yeah. Tracy is also up in the office with you? Tracy was in the office, Okay. Yes. And then you leave the office to go downstairs to get your son. To get my son and let the police in. Because I knew they couldn't get in the front door. So I go to the... I, I tell them, because there's a gun coming through the front door. The guy has his arm through the front door. And going, open the door, open the door. I'm going, I'll let you in the side. You can't really get in that way. I will... Let you decide right now. And so they hear that. Finally, after stop, after they stop screaming, my kid's like, you know, traumatized because he sees his gun coming through the, <laughs> the door. And so we put him in the back with Sarah. I go to the side. I open the, the side door, unlock it. I go to the gate, which also has to be unlocked. And I open that and I voluntarily let them in. Now, they, they, the police report says that they saw me running out of the side door of the house, like trying to get away. I'm like, are you guys crazy i let you guys <laughs> i was the one that let you in the gate you wouldn't have been in for 10 more minutes if i hadn't done that right you would have had to figure out how to get in the house so i didn't think there was anything to hide honestly i i didn't have any reason i just wanted to cooperate and let them in so i went so you to, left your house to yeah, open a gate out the side to bring door, them in. yeah out the side door to the gate for our yard is a big wooden gate six foot open the gate let them in they immediately arrested me immediately put me in cuffs said it was for firearms distribution of firearms um isolated me from everybody else, left, took me all the way out to the cop cars, all the way out to the street. Everyone else was allowed to stay, in, and Tracy was allowed to stay in the house. She was found um, at the bottom in the kitchen down the stairs of my office. The police report says she never went upstairs, according to her, though they found her cell phone up there and didn't confiscate it. Um, it was right next to the drugs that with the, with the uh, bottle that said Shelly Aubrey in it. And uh, she asked for her money. She had $17,000 on her. And she said, asked for her wallet. They gave her, um, they took, they gave her the wallet and then they said, well, we're taking your money. This is what she told me though. They told her, if you claim that heroin, we're not going to give you this money back. If you don't claim the heroin, we'll give you your money back. 
That's what they said to her That's in what your they house. They told her in my house. She told me this after when I got out, and she said they said that. I said, I said, well, what happened to your seventeen thousand? This is documented that they went to the red line and gave her money back the next day. People saw it. It's got to be documented somewhere. They gave her seventeen thousand dollars back the next day at the red line. Nobody gets their money back at the red line. That you have to go to the police department and claim it and get it back. The police drove her $17,000 to the red line. To the red line, to her hotel room, asked for her at the front desk and gave her her money. And this is documented or you're that's, assuming no, it that's is? that's documented. Well, I, I've seen on the calls for services, there are, I can't remember what category they're on. They, they show at the same time she said uh, that that happened. They show some police intervention at the red line, but it doesn't, it says somewhat strange category, like um, proactive policing or something like that. But there's an incident at the same time. That Why was, would she tell you all of this if she's the one that set you up um because she was how does that make sense? still trying to save face i suppose she people don't want you to know that i mean i think she was put in i don't know if it was preordained that she did this or if they'd made that that was an at the moment deal but that's what she told me i went to her room because I, I was going to ask her i was going to say you are going to claim your your bag aren't you and i thought most pe- honorable respectable people would say yeah i'm not gonna let you be responsible for what i brought into your house that i mean because i don't search women's purses when they come into my house that's not the culture of america we don't search people maybe we should <laughs> but i didn't think to search this woman's bag when she came into my house she'd only been there three minutes anyways and she'd just come upstairs and when she said you know anyone that wants to buy xanax and i said i don't even know what that stuff does or is you know and then you had no prior experience or knowledge of Xanax. I don't still know. I, I still didn't. Until the case happened, the pl- complaint said possession of alprazolam, something like that for sale. I said, what the hell is alprazolam? <laughs> and they said, it's Xanax. I said, oh, okay. That's what she had, huh? Someone brought me one afterwards just to show me what it was. And you had never seen Xanax before? I had never. No, I no. Had you ever represented any other not, drug cases never, or drug defendants? Not for alprazolam. Al- or Xanax. That's the, yeah, that's the generic name for Xanax, yeah. No, I hadn't done a Xanax case before. Um, usually pills don't even get charged if you're dealing with bigger drugs like heroin or something. They do, they, so they arrest you and book you that same day. Yeah. And you you post bail. I didn't want to post bail. I had stayed in the jail. I, I had offered offers. For how long? Um, a couple of days. I wasn't going to get out at all until they gave me my speedy trial. I was going to do it all from within as a protest. I was going to stay in the jail and, and until the case was completed because I was mad. What did you think at that time? When you're arrested, I and thought they say for firearms. I thought I thought that Tracy would come to her senses and step up and and oh for the firearms. I well, did you know that she had planted the drugs at that time? I had no idea. I was so. In, what were you thinking when when they arrest you and they take you downtown? I thought what are, I mean, this is crazy. I, I wasn't worried about it. Well, see, I was arrested immediately for for on suspicion of firearms distribution, and but, they didn't say anything about I, drugs. When I was in when no, when I was in the car, they came to me. Tom came to me and said, "Oh, now you're under arrest for a possession of with intent to sell heroin." I, I thought, what? then it woke me up. I thought, what? Then I was a little bit, a little bit worried about it. I said, what are you talking about? And then he said, well, Tracy says they're not hers. I said, I didn't say anything about Tracy. What? All the other, I said, you better ask those girls whose that is because it's not mine. I had no idea about any of it. I'd never even seen the bag. So all of the drugs were Tracy's that were found in your office? Yes. What about the drugs that were found on you? There were no drugs. There was a, there was a, a an empty bag found on me that is presumed to be a bag of meth uh, that was not a usable quantity. It was a scraper bag. It wasn't even tested. But so they did along test with it. along with a bunch of other like uh, money that they took from me twelve hundred dollars and some other trash in my pocket. But the a, bag wasn't tested. I don't believe the bag was tested. No, it's in the picture. You can see the photo on the very corner of it. They're charging me with meth from Tracy's bag that she had. She had heroin, two scales, methamphetamine. Xanax 
and a bottle of Suboxone in a prescription bottle with one name on it. It's all in one bag. The only indicia of ownership was the one name on the bottle of Suboxone, Shelly Aubrey. So wait, all these drugs are in one, in one bag, bag in yes. your office? In one bag in one place at the top of the stairs, yes. That's all, yeah. And it's, it's, But the bag the bag that was on you, what was in the bag? That was nothing. It was well it was it I admittedly it looked like it would had some it looked like it had some um, white substance in it. I pick up trash all the time around my yard. I mean I, I have this habit, I put I pick stuff up and I don't go to the trash can, I just put it in my pocket. So I mean it doesn't I don't even care if people believe that it wasn't a usable quantity. So it wasn't a but crime. But do you believe that there were drugs in that bag? <laughs> I believe there possibly could have been drugs in that bag, yes. But you're saying but, you picked it up. Yeah, I picked that up. Yeah, but I, I, whether there are drugs in it or not, I mean, that's still just a misdemeanor, even if it was a usable quantity. They're charging me with seven felonies for a, what they would call a scraper bag, a trash bag. Okay, seven felonies out of that? How do you get it? Because Tracy's bag. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. That's nuts. It's, it's not. What is my retributive theory? The, cr- the punishment fits the crime. Right? So they're going after <laughs> you for the bag of everything. They're going after me for my license. That's why they're going after me. They're going after me to neutralize me from practicing law. That's the bottom line. Officer Steele told Brian McBeth at the scene when Brian said, what is this all about? He said, it's a political thing. That's what he told Brian McBeth when he was being arrested. Okay. They're going after me because I've been a pain in their ass because I'm outspoken. I talk about this because I'm not afraid of them. I'm not afraid to mix it up with them within the, the confines of law. They don't like that. They don't like, to, they don't like their, their, the people they handle on the streets that make them money. Okay, to think that they could get a good deal in the criminal defense through criminal defense without having to tell. Okay, they want people to think that the only way you could survive our prosecution is to become one of our informants and help us make money. That's what they want people to think. If they see someone getting a good deal just through straight criminal defense, because let me tell you, when you go to law school and when you practice criminal defense, chapter one of criminal defense is not how to tell. <laughs> okay, that is not criminal defense at all. That is not criminal defense. That is. Politics is what that is, and, money, and profit-making politics. Okay. So these, they, don't want, they, they don't want me practicing law anymore. They don't want me practicing criminal defense anymore. And this is, there were certain special interests involved here. Okay. I had gotten $156,000 judgment against the townhouse motel very shortly before this happened, the de- December 9th initiation of this case. The townhouse motel is what Rex Bowen got in trouble for, for expediting checks to his business owner friends who were – their cash flows were hurting. That was them. I looked it up. Okay. He was trying to expedite the $23,000 checks to the townhouse motel. I just gotten a judgment against them for $156,000. They had to post that entirely in cash with the superior court to appeal it. So their cash flow was out $156,000. And so he was trying to help them out by expediting checks. He got in trouble with Paz Dominguez about that. Okay. Uh, so suddenly, um, some of Rex Bone's constituents want me neutralized. Well, gee... I wonder why, because they, I was doing the appeal on that labor. It's the only labor judgment you've seen in this county for years. And we got it against Townhouse Mattel from the labor commissioner. It goes on appeal to Superior Court. Okay? So they wanted me taken out, and they did. They, had, uh, they, had, they pulled the favor with Matt Tomlin. Matt Tomlin and Rex Bone sit, uh, are involved with St. Bernard's uh, football program. Um, and they also um, have some they have affiliations like that. They also, in Lolita... Um, if you remember James O'Neill and Trevor Bone being arrested for a home invasion in 2009 for marijuana-related home invasion, okay? Um, Matt Tomlin lives at that property. <laughs> so there's an overlap between Matt Tomlin and Rex Bone's son, sons grow, marijuana grow in Lolita on Cannibal Island Road, okay? It's so, the same property? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that. James, James O'Neill, Rex Bone's son, Trevor Bone, and two other men were arrested for a home invasion against some Bear River um, members. Women and children laid down, pepper sprayed. It was a home invasion case. Rex Bone's son was involved in that. Yes, he was. It was eventually dismissed against him, but the other ones all got misdemeanors. But it was a home invasion, pepper spray with guns, uh, uh, armed home invasion over marijuana. Documented. It's all in the paper. It's all in there. Okay, and that is um, where Matt Tomlin lives at that property. So there's some, there's some grow affiliations here going on, okay? There's some St. Bernard's affiliations, some football program affiliations going on. And so then who do they go for the warrant? They go to Joyce Heinrichs. Well, Joyce Heinrichs, presiding judge, issues the warrant, owes Rex Bone a big favor because if you look at the congressional, at the legislative record before this, she owed him a favor from the $650,000 grant that he endorsed, got the county's endorsement. Uh, it's called the Family Wellness Program. She got a six, She was seeking the county's endorsement for her six hundred fifty thousand dollars grant um, for the Family Wellness Court intertribal grant. Her and Abby Abernathy, Abernathy. So they go to Rex Bone and say, "Could you sponsor our legislation?" Big judicial violation. J- judges are not supposed to be doing any sort of legislative work at all. Period. It hasn't been reported, but that is absolutely a violation of judicial ethics. So she goes to the county. She's on videotape. If you look up the county archives asking for their endorsement for this program. Big photo shoot afterward with Rex Bones and her sh- And wait, what hands. was the $650,000 for? It was a grant. It was a grant effort that she was putting together for the Wellness Court. The family and how did Rex Bone tie into that? He agreed to sponsor the legislation for the endorsement of the county and put it on the county's agenda, got the endorsement, took the photo op with Judge Joyce Heinrichs. Jo- Judge Heinrichs and him are off record on a photo op shoot uh, uh, in the county boardroom approving that legislation. It is legislation, local, but it is. And so there's your favor owed. And so when they go to her saying, when Matt Thomas says, Rex Bone wants this investigation, wants this warrant so they can neutralize Michael Acosta, she obliges because she owes that favor too. And the next thing you know, out of 10 informants who never said I was a heroin dealer ever, never saw a heroin transaction and never bought a firearm at my house, suddenly I'm being raided for firearm and heroin. For firearms and heroin. I'm over here smiling, not because of your story, but because... It almost feels like Rex's name has come up a lot on this podcast, and it has. Sure. He's crooked. He's crooked. Straight up. Straight up crooked. I think, okay, the townhouse thing, he, they get reimbursements for homeless assistance, supposedly, um, the, the owners of the townhouse, okay? The employee that I sued them for named Candace Knight. Wait, what is the townhouse program? The townhouse ho- motel. Okay, it's a, it's a hotel. The townhouse motel gets reimbursed by the county for assisting the homeless County vouchers for homeless. A so, hotel does this? Yes, yes. They get county reimbursements. There's some homelessness program that's being abused. Um, I'll say it straight up. I'm not afraid of defamation of character or anything else. You can bring it because it's true. I'll prove it. Um, that they get reimbursed for assisting the homeless. Same thing with the uh, Royal was getting these vouchers too before they went out of business, even though they hadn't had a business license for two years. What does this <laughs> assistance look like? Housing? It's, it's cash. Food? Yeah, it's housing. It's you provide a room to this homeless person and the, the county gives you county money. will reimburse you from some other bigger grant, federal grant or federal. So I didn't know that was going on. That's either. going on. So that, that's when Rex Bone was trying to expedite those checks to his Indian friends, he says in the paper, that are business owners. of. A, you know, it was in regard to that? It was in regard to the, yeah, hotel motels getting reimbursed for homelessness assistance, okay? So they get a check from from uh, the county. Their employee was Candace Knight, sued them for not paying her properly for the $156,000 judgment we got from the Labor Commission. She was required uh, to fill out some of those, those homelessness vouchers when she was being given rooms there by her boss. So she remembers filling out reimbursement slips for the, the townhouse to get reimbursed based on homelessness funds, right? At the same time, they deducted the cost of that room, according to the Department of Labor records that we received in Discovery, they deducted the same nights for her 
of that room from her pay from her payroll. That's where they were justifying not paying her as much because they were deducting $150 a night or something like that for, for payroll. Therefore, they were double dipping. Therefore, they're not entitled to the county reimbursement if they're deducting it from her payroll and she's not homeless. She had a home the whole time. They're just abusing a program to get reimbursed. Okay. And this is the group that Rex Bone is trying to expedite their checks for because they had to put $156,000 cash in an account with a superior court to appeal that labor judgment. Now, as soon as now, so it had the effect that that they wished that the day of my raid, um, because of the raid, Candace Knight fired me as an attorney because she didn't think I had a license anymore. So here I, I'm sitting on a hundred fifty six thousand dollar judgment against the town's hotel, and my client fires me from doing the appeal because I got raided and she doesn't think that the court will take me seriously now or something like that, or that I don't have a license for some reason. I asked her and she said I just didn't think it was the best thing anymore. And so it goes over to uh, the, the firm across the street from the courthouse, and they settle it immediately for $100,000 <laughs> and take 40%, and I'm, I get nothing out of it, right, after doing all that work. After you had already <laughs> set it at 156 The judgment from the Labor Commission was 156000 I mean, and they settled it within a week and took the 100000 gave her 60 She gave me one, and they took 40 And so, and then the, re- the townhouse got back 56 at least. But, you know, I was going for the whole 50, 156 on appeal because we would have won the appeal. Um, you so, think you would have locked down I that think, yeah, number? Locked, we had we had the case just dialed in. So I mean, it's that was the incentive, and it had the immediate effect of yes, it knocked me off the case. She, unfortunately for them, they she found another lawyer to pick it up, and they still were out a hundred thousand. But it it got them back uh, fifty six thousand at least. But that is the timeline all fits, and the conflicts of interest are all there to prove this. It's all in the record. The the conflict between Joyce Heinrichs and and Rex Bone, it, it's in the videotape of the county boardroom. Um, the conflict between um, with with Ta- Matt Tomlin and and Rex Bone exists through um, the um, the St Bernard's records because he sits on the foundation of the St Bernard's board foundation like to raise money for them and Matt's obviously the varsity coach and they're both also alumni <laughs> at the same time but they have current um, um, fundraising goals you know set for the, the varsity football team um, through that foundation. And he's posted on their website as a board member of that. Okay. And then there's the affiliation of his known residence, Matt Tom's known residence with Trevor Bones grow through that 2009 home invasion case. So all these exist in the media and the public record, all these affiliations. And so as does the townhouse connection, because you believe that the townhouse motel was the, were the people complaining about me? That was the precipice. They, they were not, the, it was not the neighbors. He said that some of the neighbors, I don't know where those people are. They don't live in my neighborhood. They didn't call the police. When you want something done about a criminal uh, behavior. In your yeah, I don't know why you would call you don't. Rex Bone, let That's alone right. any county supervisor. You call, the, you call the police if you have. Compl- but to be fair, I could see a situation where maybe they are friends with Rex and would call him, I guess, maybe. Hey, by definition, it's political lobbying, no matter how you cut it. If you, yeah. if you call him instead of the police, you are lobbying for a political solution, not reporting a crime. So the case was started off by political lobbying against me from the get, from the, out the gate. But, so you think this was a concerted effort against you? Uh, concerted only by those special interests. By, by, but that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty large group of people. Not, I mean, you'd have to have three people in, in power that owed favors to each other. Three people. One a cop. One did, a cop. Uh, Rex. Rex, who's obviously a known factor. And, and Joyce, which is surprising show. to me, but because Joyce I, being the judge. Joyce Heinrichs, yes. And, and, and of, of the three, she is the most respectful and um, someone who I admire. But I was disappointed to find out that she um, did this because obviously there was a favor owed from, or the appearance of a favor owed from the board videotape of her shaking Rex Bone's hand in the, in, during the meeting. 
and it's, it's a, it was a photo op for her because he had done a favor for her. And so she agreed to do this photo op. Presumably, she's a salaried person. It was during daytime hours, Monday through Friday. She was on the clock as a Superior Court judge lobbying the county supervisors for money, for an endorsement for money. And so I, and I, I didn't even look at that until after the case. I didn't even see that until after. I said, why would she do this? Why would she issue a warrant that had no basis? And there I found it because she owed a favor to Rex Bone. So um, it's, this is the reason I ran. It inspired me to run because all these, I mean, there's, there's more to it. There was supposed to be a special master there because it was a law office that was being raided. The state law says it's supposed to be a special master. He was 30 minutes late. Even though it's a law office in your house? Yeah, yeah. She ordered, Judge Heinrich said in the warrant, special master Dustin Owens shall be, conduct the, the, the search of the law office to tell them what's confidential, what's not, what's client property, what's not. They didn't wait for him. He was 30 minutes late. Now remember, it's a seven-day-old warrant. They couldn't wait 30 more minutes for the special master to show up, but they came in three minutes after Tracy Nichols showed up to plant those drugs. <laughs> Did they have an explanation as to why they waited the seven days? Uh, no, they said they were, well, he told me they were waiting for one of their informants to say that there was something at my house, that there was a firearm at my house. So you got it based on, so you got this thing saying I'm imminently a danger to the community and then you, there's not enough to go into my house for, so you wait till something comes up. Then nothing came up. I don't deal drugs. I've never I, been a drug I don't dealer. understand how that works. You don't have to just get another You have 10 days, warrant? 10 days usually. 10 days. Yeah. But usually statistically. 10 days after it expires, you can just, 10 you days can still after use you it. obtain it. 10 days out, you have to execute it within 10 days of when it's obtained, okay? And so they didn't usually, do that. Usually that's used because the person can't be found. I was home the whole week. I was, they saw me that day and followed me. There's no explanation if I'm an imminent danger to society and trading firearms why they wouldn't come in. By and large, the vast majority of warrants are executed the same day they're obtained, if not the next day. But usually immediately. Usually it's a situation where they want to go in immediately. Okay, so they had a seven-day or a 10-day window and they waited until the seventh Seven day. day. So it's not that they... They had the warrant. It expired an no. additional seven days, and no. then they went in. No, it was within the ten day window. Okay, but, but it's odd statistically, and it's odd. It's very odd in light of the fact that they didn't wait thirty more minutes for Dustin Owens, the special master, to get there, which was required by the warrant's terms. And that doesn't invalidate. The... It may. It, we're going to file a suppression motion on that. I think it should because that bag of drugs was. They admit in my law office, and it in fact was client property, and how and Dustin was supposed to be there to determine what was client property and what wasn't, and they made that assessment on their, their own. They went into my office and searched it on their own. They said, well, we weren't going through anything confidential client property or files. Well, that's the whole point is you're not trained to, to recognize that as a law enforcement officer. That's why the law requires a special master to recognize what's client property and what's client file and what's not. And so they didn't wait for Dustin Owens. He showed up admittedly late. They've said that in the record, and that should invalidate the search itself. But I mean, that's, I want a vindication on substance, not procedure. I want them to DNA test the bag or allow me to DNA test the bag to show that my DNA is nowhere on that bag of drugs or any containers in it. I didn't realize that all the drugs were in one bag. That wasn't anywhere The ones they're charging. The, all the drugs that are related to a sales charge that are the felony that would take my license are in one bag. The other thing that could take my license is the maintaining a controlled uh, place for controlled substances. It has to be storage or use, okay? There's no evidence anyone used any drugs there at that point. And there's no evidence because they're blaming me for possessing all the drugs that I'm storing it for a third party. Did you have any other drugs that were not in the bag? No. No, there was no, nothing. All the drugs in the house, in the office, the, were think, in that bag. I think they said that, that, that I had never seen Ashley. She'd just come in with Sarah with that little group of three. And they, she was in the bathroom the whole time. When I let the cops in, in the house, I didn't ever even saw her. She was still in the bathroom. Apparently, when she got out of the bathroom, um, 
they said she was trying to flush drugs down the toilet. And I was like, not as far as I know, not for me. I mean, I don't, I don't think she even knew the cops were there because she was in the bathroom. So she might have had something in her, something on her or she, I don't know. I didn't even see her. Well, you would but, hear, I would assume I've never been a part of a raid, but I would assume <laughs> that you would be able to hear if the cops are raiding the house that you're well, in. Well, see, I, I saw him on the video camera. No, but I, for her. Oh, yeah. If she was flushing drugs because she thought, yeah. oh, shit, the cops are coming. I don't know that what she was doing. I, I, I don't know what she was doing. She just walked in the house. I hadn't seen her. I never saw her face. Till but aside time. from that, there were no other yeah, drugs. Yeah, that, that would be a simple possession on her part anyways. It wasn't a large... Because the way you phrased that, it sounded like there were other drugs in the house that weren't well, that, pertinent that's, that's to the, the case. One, that's the one caveat. Is I don't know what Ashley had. She, in the bathroom. Now, now, granted, she was never charged, so I have to assume there was nothing criminal. Because they didn't charge her, even though she was a strike felon. If she had anything illegal, if she sneezed at him wrong, they could have arrested her. Why was Ashley over? She came with Sarah. She's one of Sarah's good friends from a long time. They were they did pregnancies together a couple of kids ago. It's a little weird <laughs> that you're hanging out with all of these felons, but well, again, it's your office, so it's remember, kind of hard to delineate. Remember, I wasn't hanging out with anybody. These are is me and my son there um, with Rainy Macbeth um, that was just picked up and left. That was just a play date for my kid. Okay, I'm at home, a home dad doing a part time. But he is a felon. Oh, uh, Brian Macbeth is on federal felony probation. Yes, Macbeth. Yes, for mind you. Only for the cultivation of marijuana. And Brian's case, he is the last known federal prosecution for cultivation of marijuana in Humboldt County history. In my opinion, he should be given a presidential pardon for that because that's ridiculous to make someone a federal felon over cultivation of marijuana when you're handing out licenses to do this practice at the state level. So I don't know why that happened, but that's all he's a felon for. Okay. But he was on federal felony probation and by all right, they should have had him arrested and detained. They did arrest and detain him, but they didn't charge him with any state crimes for a half ounce of something that he had in his car, in his dash, inside the console of his dash or something like that. Um, um, so I never saw that either. He, that's, I think, why he left Rainey at my house because it was safe at my house. <laughs> so, but the two women just came in with Sarah because one asked for a ride and one is Sarah's buddy. They were, just, they were both giving Tracy a ride. I never saw... The bag that Tracy had, my DNA is not on it anywhere, I guarantee you. And the one piece of indicia in that bag, which is Shelly Aubrey, was a person I had never met before, who I've now interviewed, and I'm taking a declaration from. And she says, I didn't know you from Adam, Michael. I knew Tracy. I was hanging out with her the day before. I left that bag in the car uh, of Maria Camacho's, and we were all three in the car together, so she must have gotten it. And she described the bag as the same bag, as a, as a shaving case bag, some sort of a toiletry bag. I, never, I still haven't seen the bag to this day. They said it was a shaving case. And then at Prelim, they said it was a men's shaving case. They made particular, they particularized it, right? I don't know if that bag says Avon in it or Old Spice. I have no idea what it says. You in never it. saw I've the bag. I've never seen the bag. I, I would like to see it to see if it says Avon in it because I don't know if it's a men's or women's shaving case. It is a little uncomfortable to digest because it's a judge, a cop, and, and a, a small district community. supervisor. It's not that hard. I, this is a small old town. I, there's very, um, there's, it's, if people are in denial that there's a good old boy network in this town. <laughs> I, I'll admit I was more inclined to believe there wasn't until I started doing these podcasts. Yeah. So, so if the words, uh, if, the, if the name Rex Bone hasn't come up with cronyism at all in the past, then I think you, there's, you haven't been listening close enough to the streets and stuff because that, it happens. And, and frankly, I have nothing personal against any of these people. I've never personally had any dispute with these people but you think they're trying to get back at you for what you did well rex with bones the rex bones that and rex bones park is around the corner from my house and uh sometimes his base he, the baseball park the baseball park that's owned by the field committee corporation um and i, I don't know uh, matt tomlin does some practice there with the 
the Eagle League or base, it's like baseball for kids or something like that, American Legion Eagles or something like that. So and so, I don't know if I'm just a thorn in their side because they see people coming over for advice or what. You know, I'm definitely a, a non-conventional, unconventional lawyer. I'm I call myself the anti-lawyer. I don't like lawyers. I don't hang out with lawyers. I'm not proud to be a lawyer. I don't think lawyers are any better than anybody else around here. Um, they're probably the last people I would hang out with, honestly. I like hanging out with people who work with their hands, vocational people, people who are of the earth, you know, work with the earth, mechanics, um, gardeners, anyone who does vocations with their hands. And I come from a family of educators. I don't have a bunch of lawyers in my family. I don't go out to lunch with the lawyers, whether it's prosecutors, defense lawyers. I just, it's just not my preference, not my thing. My identity is not wrapped up in being a lawyer. So sometimes I laugh that, gee, they don't know what a favor they'd be doing to take my license. I don't even like practicing law. But that being the case, I'm now inspired to run for district attorney because of all these civil rights abuses that occurred in my case. The lack of discovery alone, the lack of being forthright with discovery. You know, under Paul Gallegos, you can say what you want about Paul Gallegos. We always got full discovery, and then it would be let the chips fall, let the dust settle, okay? Under this administration, they don't intentionally, they don't give you all the discovery. If it's exculpatory, they withhold it. They're trying to win by cheating. That's cheating. Exculpatory meaning? It clears your name. What? Uh, I'm, they can hold? They're not supposed to. Under Brady, it's Brady material. Brady but material. This, ad, this... this administration, we struggle with getting basics from them, like the videotape from my own DVR that I was watching when they were raiding that they took and it's on the pink property sheet they left my DVR they will not give me the tape and they say they can't find it that would clear my name because it shows Tracy Nichols with the bag the backpack on her back okay uh the 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 phone that she left in my office they confiscated Sarah's phone the phone that was closest to the bag of drugs was Tracy Nichols phone uh, they gave it back to her rather than taking it and taking the text messages off to show that she was the one that was Gathering up all these drugs around. Well, who's just walking around with seventeen grand? Well, they said it was from winnings from the casino, and that they had verified that within the twenty-four hours and gone to the red line and given her her money back. You did all that rather than calling Shelly, rather than finding out who Shelly Aubrey was, which was the indicia in the bag. You spent your time verifying that her seventeen thousand dollars from gambling winnings. You didn't bother calling the, the one indicia evidence you had, and they said no, we didn't call Shelly Aubrey. We don't know who she was. Well, I don't know who she is either, but I've met her since then. I've met her, I had to, to say, do you know Tracy Nichols? Yes, I do. I was with her the day before that happened. <laughs> she said, I can't believe they're doing this to you, Michael. I can't believe my friend Tracy is doing this to you, Michael. Why doesn't Tracy just come forward? Well, apparently she sees more benefit to being in the pocket of the cops than just being honest. But if that were true, why would she tell you? Why not just um, let because you? Because at the time, she, I think she had to save something. Well, because I went to her. She didn't come to me with that information. I went to her hotel. You tracked her down? I tra- Well, she was at a... She was at, a different hotel at that point because she'd been kicked out of the Red Lion for all the traffic and the fact that the cops had been there a couple times to give her money back. Red Lion management got tired of her and put her over the Clarion and that's when she moved to the Clarion. I tracked her down as soon as I got out of jail. I tracked her down and said, what's going on, Tracy? Why is this happening? And that's when she, and I, 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 she told me that the cops said if she, if she claimed the drugs, she won't get her money back. So she had incentive to not claim the drugs. I said, okay, well, I understand what you did, but now it's time to claim it, huh? And her response was, well, I'm just going to do what my lawyer says to do. And that didn't make me feel very good. Do you know <laughs> how she many... didn't just say, yes, I will do the right thing. You do know? you know how many cops were involved in the raid? Oh, Jesus. We had, I, I think it was like 40 cops in four different locations because they had, they had borrowed APD, Arcada, to do the, the fourth location, which apparently they didn't find anything at and no evidence of anything that I was supposedly dealing firearms with. 
it was Abby Wirtz's house on Union Street. And according to her and them, they found nothing there. I don't even know if they went in there. The discovery they gave me from that, that particular raid uh, was the wrong property. It was an unrelated discovery. So I don't even know if they went in that house, but there was nothing found there. So the allegation of where I would be purchasing firearms or, or conspiring to distribute, nothing was found there at all. Okay. Um, so the the one in Ridgewood was covered by EPD. That was the that's Haber, your the primary Haberman, residence. The, no, that's the Haberman house. Oh, okay. Where the half pound of heroin and all the firearms was found, including the illegal assault weapon and the stolen firearms. Thirty firearms with heroin, and he resulted in a mis- it resulted in a misdemeanor for him. Okay. Already done, no prelim or nothing, okay? Um, and then there's my house and my storage, which are right in cutting Storage unit, they found nothing illegal. All my firearms were locked away safely. None of them were illegal. Um, and there was my house. And I had basically, uh, if you want to nail me for a scraper bag in my pocket, I would just plead no contest to that right now. It's a misdemeanor. It's a PC-1000 dismissal is what it is um, because I've never had any offenses before. So I could, the easiest way for me to get dismissal would just be no contest in PC-1000, 20-hour course, and it's dismissed, okay? Just because I don't want to have to go to trial on a stupid thing like that, right, and argue whether it was trash or not. But um, And that's even if it was a usable quantity. It wasn't even a usable quantity. It was a, it was a trash scraper bag. It was, it was like looked like a remnants of something, admittedly, but I don't know what it was, and I don't think they tested it. Even if they did, it still has to be usable quantity. But I would gladly plead that out just to say no contest and get it done with rather than going through this whole um this whole thing but they are still charging me with like five or six seven felonies something like that they added more after the prelim because they decided that the xanax was sold for was possessed for sale and the suboxone was possessed for sale what kind of drug what kind of heroin dealer sells heroin and suboxone at the same time i don't even know what suboxone is what gets you off of heroin oh (laughs) so So. you now have Seven felony charges, something like that. Yeah, five to seven felonies. Um, it's 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 overkill, and then it shows how overkill it is in the fact that they've never gave, given us an offer, even a bad offer. They haven't given us any offer to settle the case when they've settled all four other cases. Well, two of them they didn't prosecute. Two of them misdemeanored out before prelim, and we're left with all felonies and no offer two years later. Yeah, why has it been taking so long? And I can't even find anything about it anymore. It's all from twenty twenty. Yeah, I think there were a few articles from 2021. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, I mean I'm not alleged to be any problem since then. I mean, they they know, the fact is they know I'm not a heroin dealer. They know I'm not a firearms dealer. I'm not trying to So you're that. saying they don't actually intend to go through with oh, these they charges? Oh, they intend to go through with it. Their goal is to take my license. Their goal is they're using they're abusing their authority to do a prosecution to, to neutralize me as an activist. Because of but shit like that. Doesn't me, it I'm seem sorry. crazy? No, you can say whatever you <laughs> because want. Because of shit me. like this, me speaking, because I'm not afraid to speak my mind and never have been. You have to remember, the first time they started hating on me was when I represented Earth First doing the logging wars. Okay? I was representing Earth First kids who were trespassing because of their political beliefs, conscientious objectors, and being arrested intentionally, civil disobedience, and they didn't like me back then. But doesn't it seem crazy, the idea of them trying to go after a lawyer? Isn't that kind it, of like somebody trying to fight a Navy SEAL? Uh, mm. Not necessarily. I mean, I mean, we're not talking about them planting drugs on yeah. some felon. It's a little extreme. It's a little bold. It's definitely bold. But, you know, look at Tomlin's uh, Facebook page. He had a page on there saying that he was king of the north. And it shows him with all these firearms behind him and all- icicles and stuff. This is right after his champion- Division Six championship um, game, you know. And he's, he, they, these people believe truly that they control this county. I mean, look at this way. They're growing pot together on Cannibal Island Road. A task force agent is, who lives with Rex Bones' uh, sons grow lives there on site. So they are a task force agent. Yeah, lives there Matt, as well? Matt Tomlin's address is 
the grow where James O'Neill and Trevor Bone launched that home invasion because of marijuana. It's a marijuana operation, which brings up the hypocrisy of it all, too. The, just years ago, marijuana was a felony, too, people. You know, and now you have task force ag- agents growing it with with supervisors' sons, and he, now Rex is what the cannabis representative for the county, um, and doing a terrible job, I might add, because Humboldt County has blown its lead in the cannabis business. They should have just gone the other way, and they should have put marijuana on the market like Disney markets, Disneyland souvenirs at Disneyland. They should have just had it everywhere for, you know, with the common restrictions of no adult, you know, no, no distribution to kids, no DUIs, the same restrictions we have with alcohol, but they should have just gone the other way and been the cannabis capital of the world like they should be. And they'd be making more tourist revenue. Instead, the most profitable cannabis uh, operation in America is in Michigan. Michigan. I mean, think of that. The weather in Michigan why are they the most profitable cannabis operation in the country? Because of efficient managing and because of um, streamlined regulation. We do not have streamlined regulation of cannabis in this county. But that's not, that's a county board of supervisors issue, not a DA issue. What do you think of your odds in this case? Oh, I don't think I have any chance of winning. I, I knew that. Do you think winning? you're going to lose? I, I, well, I wouldn't, call it, it, I, don't, I don't call it losing because I didn't go into it to be the DA necessarily. I would... No, no, I no. Would, no. We'll get to that. I'm yeah. not talking about the DA race. I'm talking about your case. Oh, my case, I would think I would win. You'll yeah, think you I would. Think okay. Win. Well, for lots of reasons. There's other angles on it that are probably um, not worth going into. I, I don't believe that necessarily the judge that did the prelim was, was a judge at the time. It was judge, judge Feeney, and he was retired at the time. And so the Constitution, and it's surprising to me that the judges don't know the law of judges sometimes. The law of judges says that the Constitution, we're entitled to have an elected judge in this state by Constitution, California Constitution, okay? It says elected judges, seven of which are appointed by the legislator or apportioned to Humboldt County. They're all elected unless one retires within the six-year term, then the governor appoints a replacement for the remainder of the term. That's how you get to be a superior court judge that can do a felony prelim. You can have commissioners and other lawyers do ministerial work, arraignments um, on charges. You can have them do family law cases, things like that. But Superior Court judges only do felony prelims. Judge Feeney was retired by two years back then. The only other way to become a judge in this county is to have a reciprocal agreement with a a county with another active uh, judge of, say, an adjacent county to trade judges when you need uh, supplemental help, which he was not an active judge from another county. Or you go through the assigned judges program of the Judicial Council of California, which is constitutionally mandated council. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of California is the chairman of the Judicial Council, and that group appoints supplemental judges. If you go to their website now, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of California is saying that she will assign supplemental judges to help courts catch up with the COVID backup. She has an article on it right now. I'm pretty sure she didn't have such an assignment for Judge Feeney at the point where Judge Heinrichs appointed him for all purposes to my case. And so basically, I had someone conduct my prelim who was just a civilian like you or me retired judge, and he had no judicial authority to hold me to answer. I was illegally committed. That's another, that's a 995 motion to dismiss we're going to file. So I, I have, and, and then on the facts of it, if I, they allow me to DNA test this evidence, and or if I have Shelley Aubrey testify saying, I don't know, Michael, I left that in the presence of, Shelley, uh, of Tracy Nichols, I'm either going to win at trial, I'm going to win on a dismissal, a suppression, um, um, and the trial, I believe the jury of my DNA is not on any of the items in that bag, and Tracy's is all over it because they were supposed to collect her DNA when she was arrested, right? Then I think I'd get an acquittal, I would hope. Not having my DNA on any of that stuff shows that I wasn't in possession of it. And it corroborates my story. So I've challenged that. I told them I would front guilty pleas on all felonies. 
I will front those guilty pleas if you just DNA test it. But if my DNA is not on that stuff, you dismiss the whole case. And they wouldn't do it. They that. will not do it. Why did you step down as your attorney? Oh, um, well, because I had an agreement for discovery of all these things that um, Jay Mackey was supposed to provide the discovery. Uh, she's a, The DVR and the other the stuff. The DVR. She said she'd look into it. She promised me she would look into it. And it was a gentleman. It was a, not a gentleman. She's a, a woman. But I mean, a, a professional courtesy sort of agreement off the record. That you, I will, as a professional, look into that for you and get that to you. It was a, it was a handshake sort of uh, commitment that I, as a professional, and her being a Columbia law grad and me being a Stanford law grad, I thought that she would honor that professional commitment. And when it came to trial confirmation, she said, the people are ready to go to trial. And I was like, well, where's the, the tape that you promised me? Oh, she didn't know anything about it. And I said, you're really going to try to win by cheating and not giving me the discovery. You're really trying to not give me my own videotape that shows Tracy Nichols with those bags on her back when she walked into my house. Okay. And so I just said, I could have asked for a continuance otherwise, but I said, you know what? I, I want an attorney. And that just had the effect of stopping it right there because, um, I'm entitled to an attorney at all phases. And um, so that it was kind of like a delay. It was, um, fight fire with fire. Yeah. It was fight fire with fire because they were being, they were practicing unethically. They were not delivering Brady material as exculpatory material. They know I had a DVR. It's on the property receipt that they gave me that I had a DVR running. Yeah. That's crazy that they can just lose that. What the hell? Who's managing their evidence room? Where is there? Who's managing the evidence room? Why do they lose only the things that help me? Why will they not allow it to be DNA? And the video, tested? the video of her with the bags, absolutely. Why didn't they? Why didn't they have one of their six investigators, two of which were involved in the raid, who were pre-arrest investigating me? Why didn't they have them for trial follow up on the indicia in the bag, Shelley Aubrey? Get a statement from Shelley Aubrey. You would think they would get one from her, that so that hopefully she would say, "Oh, I know Michael. I sold him those drugs yesterday." But they didn't. What they would find would be she would say, "I didn't even know Michael then. I knew Tracy Nichols. I was with her the day before." Why don't they follow up on the indicia? They're always relying on indicia in a case. That's the only indicia in the bag. See, they're, they're not trying to provide any exculpatory material. They're just trying to railroad me to take my license to neutralize me because of political forces. and Because, of, because at this point, because I'm so outspoken about it, because of egos. That's what it's about. And like I said, I always joke with people that, hell, they'd be doing the biggest favor of my life to take my license. Honestly, because I don't even enjoy practicing law that much. Okay. But then why are you fighting so hard? You got to care on Because on I don't level. think that the, yeah, I do care. I, not to keep my license, I care because it's unjust. And the last chapter of the story is not going to be that I go down on a fabricated, manufactured case. It's going to be that I'm vindicated um, because that's who I am. And that's why they hate me because I'm not afraid of them. I don't, I don't just bow down to them as kings of the North. And I don't, and I encourage my clients to do a straight up legal defense in every case I've never done a case that involved telling on anybody. Um, it's retributive justice, remember. You get punished for what you did do. That doesn't include if you tell on someone else's future crime, we'll let you off for what you did do. You're supposed to be punished retrospectively for what you did. Punishment fits the crime. There's no out for telling on other people for future crimes. There's no investment in a future crime of another person to get a discount on what you did. Okay? <laughs> That's chicken shit. Okay, it's wrong ethically, it's wrong morally, and it should be eliminated from the system. Or they should equalize all categories uh, that are eligible for that, the financial benefit of forfeiture. But I don't think anytime you give a for-profit incentive to the law enforcement agents, they're going to take it. They, they vote, you know, people say you vote your pocketbook. Well, they police their pocketbooks. Okay, and they are policing their pocketbooks. <laughs> they, they go with the category of cases that makes them money, makes them independent, supplemental, slush fund. No, 
independent from the county tax base, independent from the tax payers and the, the uh, supervision of anyone, including the county supervisors, local government, that slush fund is independent of that. They can operate without us with that slush fund, the bigger it gets. They can fund themselves, basically, through our property and our money, the publics, if they just trade the right cases for the ones they can make money on. That's the system that exists right now. It's in, the, you can see there's, there, there's institutes studying this now. Policing for profit is trying to be curtailed. The legislature is looking at it. The federal government's looking at it. Recently, the, the federal Department of Justice cut off the drug task force from receiving money itself. They said they are requiring it to have a fiduciary. This has just happened this last year, okay? For the first year, they're requiring them to have a fiduciary. It either has to be the county agency or one of the law enforcement on the team involved um, because they are no longer paying money directly to task force because they've realized that the task force take on a government and a life of their own that's independent from any electoral base. They take on, no one regulates them. They consist of all the law enforcement agencies and the DA's office sits on the board. There's an executive board that meets. I have the one document from the county server, if you look it up, executive board of Humboldt County Drug Task Force. One document that shows an agenda of theirs during COVID, totally in violation of the Brown Act, where it doesn't have anything posted about what they discuss. Um, and, and the DA, it shows the DA sitting on the board, which is another sort of violation because the DA cannot be in bed with the cops. The DA has to be representing the people. It has to have a screening function for the people of the state of California. See, if I'm DA... I will represent, I will begrudgingly, reluctantly, I will do this because I don't really want to go down there the next four years every day. But I would represent the people, meaning I don't represent the cops. County council represents the cops. When you represent the people, you want to believe your client. If my client comes in, if the people comes in, the defendant's included in the people. If you tell me one version of the story and this cop tells me another version of the story, unless he has his department-issued video camera on, which he was supposed to be wearing, who are you going to believe? I'm going to believe my client. What effect does that have? It makes the cops wear their body-worn cameras. Did the cops wear any cameras? No. When they raided no. you? No. Oh, they had one, they went, they had one uh, camera. Bernstein had a camera on. He brought me back out to open my safe. They thought they were going to find a bunch of drugs in it. They found my penny collection in my safe, which is I really want back. I'd almost plead guilty just to get that back, honestly, because <laughs> it means that much to me. It's three years of research I was doing on World War II pennies, uh, numismatic value. Um, it's a lot of time I put into that. They took that from me, and they hopefully still have it. But um, that's all they found in the safe. There were no guns. There were no drugs in my safe, right? But they had one camera on that safe. None of them had body-worn cameras. They haven't even given me the videotape from the safe being opened. That's, they gave it to my co-counsel, my former co-counsel, Anastasia, uh, from it's Sarah's lawyer. I can't remember her name right now. But uh, she, uh, she showed me some of it, and it shows Tracy Nichols' phone right next to the bag of drugs, right? <laughs> and it's on. Why didn't they take that phone and say, ah, this is the most likely person that owns this bag of drugs with a cell phone sitting right next to it. How is this <laughs> going to play out if you do win and you do become district attorney? You're going to be prosecuted by your own office? Well, no. I, so, you mean, Doesn't, if I, I mean, won the election, then, then it would be bumped to the attorney general's office. And I think the attorney general would look at it and the evidence. And first of all, they'd give me the discovery. And when they looked at the discovery and um, looked at the declaration from Shelley Aubrey that I'm obtaining and, and possibly DNA tested, they would be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that I'm that wasn't my stuff. It wasn't that this Tracy Nichols is her DNA is all over it, <laughs> and she was the nearest to it, and her phone was next to it. It was hers, and that she put it down right before, right as I was going to get the door for the cops. She she must have done it then because I never saw the bag. Who so. who's the prosecuting attorney on your case? It's Jane Mackey. And she she's uh she's she's a smart lady. She um is from Columbia University Law School, so she has some brains, but she's just. Um, 
I guess, uh, either believes the lies or um, is in on it. I don't think, I don't want to. Because, I mean, why wouldn't she draw the same conclusion as the Attorney General? Uh, I, I, would, I would imagine that the task force hasn't given her all the information. I'd imagine she doesn't have the, um, the um, audacity to demand the uh, information from the task force. She just believes them and says, well, they say they don't have the videotape. What do you mean? Go look at their evidence. I mean, the DOJ would, if they had to, if the FBI was involved, they would go in and find it. Go into their evidence room and find Someone has to have my DVR. It's on the property receipt. They, they, the carbon copy says DVR <laughs> on it. And they can't even identify where that is. How are they finding, how do they even know which drugs are associated with, with house if they don't, they didn't even have evidence bags when they came into my house. They used my lunch sandwich bags, my paper bra- bags. They took out of my kitchen, started using them as evidence bags. Very professional. So That how, is so crazy. <laughs> how, do they know, how do they know where, what came from where if they can't find my DVR in their locker? It's a, it's a big black box <laughs> with digital recordings in it. So I, I don't know why she's not, I think- It's it, tricky. This is a tricky- you know why? It's a trophy for her. I'm a tr- I've always said, look, I'm not a criminal other than a trophy criminal. I'm the one they want to put a feather in their cap and say, I got Michael Acosta. They've tried to do this before. They raided me 10 years ago. Okay. And they tried to get me then for some bullshit and it didn't work out. So they what did them. they raid you for then? It was, it was pot grow and uh, I can't remember what else, maintaining the place for drug house again. And it was just, and I was working stuck. full-time at Bear River at the point they raided. I was not even there. I was working full-time, 40, 60 hours a week at two jobs at Bear River. And two years later, they charged me with um, the whole raid, and nothing became of it. It was dismissed on motion of the people because it was so old and such obviously a political prosecution back then. That's more evidence that, it was, that, that this is a political prosecution because they did this to me 10 years ago, and Judge Watson, God bless him, made them dismiss it. When I went to court after the intervention, he said, I believe that people have a motion for Mr. Costa. And uh, the one that ran against um, Ma- Maggie Fleming, I can't remember her name now, um, but she got up and said, people moved to dismiss in the interest of justice. And so they dismissed that because it was filed by Alan Dollison. It was obviously a political attempt to take me out. So the people themselves dismissed at that time. So I got to ask, have you ever done drugs? Oh, yeah. I, I, I am a libertarian. I believe, um, I don't believe that drugs are a good thing. I believe when you go to college or when you don't go to college, it's okay to experiment with things. Okay. Um, consenting adults. I don't have any, um, qualms about saying, I'm not going to tell you I didn't inhale. I've, I've, I've tried most drugs, tried them in the past. Um, but, um, I don't recommend them. I don't recommend them. I don't necessarily know now that I'm 51 now, going on 50, 51, almost uh, 52. Um, I'm a different person than I was 20 or 30 years ago. You know, um, you grow up and, and this is what, what I feel myself off of now in this particular instance, because I'm not an angry person. Um, I'm a very pretty benevolent person. I've, I've worked for the public interest my whole life. I've been a legal aid mentality. My first job uh, inter- review of my year, they said, you need to learn to say no, Michael, because you're just taking too many legal aid cases. <laughs> so I've been like that a long time and um, haven't made them a lot of money. I've always been low, lower income jobs because I want to help people. But uh, I don't, I, I think right now I'm enraged. I'm enraged um, that they would try to do this so blatantly and so arrogantly. Um, the hypocrisy of it is what bothers me about it mostly because they're all Growing pot. They're all growing pot, you know, down there in Cannibal Island Road, yet they're pros- trying to prosecute me for things that I'm not. I will be the first one to plead out to anything that I did. 
gladly. If I did something, I'll plead out to it. I'm not going to go down for something I didn't do. I'm not going to go down on a manufactured case. They got me fucked up. Seriously. <laughs> I'm not going down for something I didn't do. Well, I partly ask because you seem very animated, not saying yeah. that you're on drugs currently. Yeah, no, I'm enraged. You, I'm happy to have the opportunity was, to express it. That's this what is, I was going to get to next is you... Form. I could also see you being this animated yeah. and I have to preface yeah. it like this because yeah. people that are just watching and aren't yeah. in the room here with you, you know, wow. if I was an innocent man in your position, I'd be losing my shit. Yeah. Not enraged. saying, I, I'm not going to make any judgment calls yet yeah. on you, Yeah. but if what you're saying is true, yeah, You'd be enraged. I'd be losing my shit. Yeah. Partly because you know what the truth is. Yeah. And you're trying to tell people who are like, yeah, but the yeah. cops, the DA's yeah, office. they're all respectable. The they, judge. They wear uniforms. They're more credible than you are, right? That's the whole thing. And the jury questioning, we go, does it make someone more credible when they wear a uniform in your mind? You know, is, is someone who's not I'm wearing a sure uniform? I'm sure it's a yes. Oh, they all say, oh, no, no. I, I'll judge a uniformed person just as much. I'll give as much credibility as someone who's not wearing a uniform. Yeah, and but do they really? That's a lie. You know that's a lie. See, you called it yourself. That's yeah. a lie. And they all say that same thing. They're all programmed. It's all cultural programming. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's, I am totally enraged about this. I've been reserved about it to this point. This is the first election venue forum. This is the first time I've seen you. This I've watched a this couple of the, the public forums. This is the first time I've discussed my case openly. Surprisingly, it didn't. I was... I was disappointed that it didn't come up more during the campaign debates. I was waiting for them to ask me about the case. I was and surprised it never it, yeah. came up. So that's why I I'm thought that was glad weird. to talk about. It. I, br I instigated talking about it here because I'm running out of opportunities to talk about it because I am totally enraged by what they've done, and they are the criminals. They even stole my money. Grand theft is nine hundred fifty dollars or more. Matt Tomlin stole twelve hundred bucks from me at the rate. It was in my pocket. There's no follow-up. He says, the police report says that minimal amount of money he had on him. He doesn't remember how much. It was a couple hundred bucks, he says, maybe. Well, where's that documented? It's not documented anywhere. It's a couple hundred bucks. It's a lot of money if you have nothing, right? And their uh, assistant during the raid, Maria Camacho, which is documented in the, in the report, um, who's another client of mine, um, but she happened to be there, and they gave her the $1,200, and she's, she will say that. And there were Gave the, her the $1,200? Gave her my years. money and gave it to her. And I never recovered it. And they, I mean, that's supposed to go into evidence. In fact, if they're accusing me of being a drug dealer, why wouldn't they want that in evidence, 1200 bucks? But again, so you've been an attorney for 20 years. Yeah, over 20 years. Have you actively used any drugs during that time? Um, yeah, I mean, I used to... I, pot got me through law school. Okay. <laughs> I hate to admit that. Because you, you went to Harvard. I no, mean, I that is... Stanford Law School. Stanford. Yeah. Not but I mean, yeah, I, I couldn't have survived I knew Stanford that. I don't know why I said Harvard. I scared a bong around in my backpack. I got... I remember uh, Tony Serra did a lecture at Stanford Law School uh, for the Federalist Society, and afterwards, he was an alumni undergrad, and um, we got, went down to the Federalist Society's room and, and all smoked, uh, smoked a bowl of pot, <laughs> and we smoked a joy. It wasn't a joy, it was a bong, I think, but we got him high at the law school, and that was a fond memory I have in law school of, in the Federalist Society room. <laughs> but, um, and if you don't know who J. Tony Serra is, he's probably the greatest living um, criminal defense lawyer still, that's still around. I mean, he's up there with Kunstler and all of them. He represented uh, Huey Newton. Uh, he represented Barry Lincoln, um, you know, the Black Panthers, the uh, Barry Lincoln case. It was uh, the Native American movement. Um, he was involved in the Pepper Spray case. He's, he's a very famous lawyer. He's one of my mentors. I've done two cases with him, and we, we got him high off of a joint or some pot in, in, in law school. And so, yeah, I mean, psychedelics at Stanford were all over the place, um, all, all sorts of things. I've even tried heroin. I've tried it. I, I, don't, I can't stand the smell of it. <laughs> 
It didn't do anything for me. But that I haven't done that recently. No. But outside of law school, while practicing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to understand. Yeah. I mean, I'll openly talk about it. Lawyers have a high stress um, profession. Okay. It's a very high stress profession. The state bar of California now, in our CLEs, our MCLEs, mandatory continuing legal ed- education of the bar, we have to do. I think it's uh, 25, 25 um, units every three years for the state bar to, to keep our licenses, okay? One of those is in ethics, and mandatorily, and one of those is in um, substance abuse in the legal profession. <laughs> That's, the state bar acknowledges it. I mean, it's, it's because of the stress of, there are, if you're not using drugs in this profession, you're probably an alcoholic, or unless you've come to terms with it and more mature, at some point you reach a point in your life where you don't let the stress of the profession get to you as much. And I'm, I'm frankly over being a lawyer. I really am. I, I don't. My identity is not wrapped up in being a lawyer. I'm a musician. I'm a father. I'm a brother. I'm a mechanic. Um, I try to be a good friend. I'm a gardener. I do a lot of things besides being a lawyer. That's not the core of my identity anymore. And I don't think it ever was really. But a lot of people that is. And so they think they're hurting me so much. They took my license. Um, I wouldn't shed a tear. I just um, do what I do you know, in my life, because it's not the be-all, end-all to me. In fact, it's ironic if they were trying to get rid of me, just like with probation. Oh, we want to get rid of this Acosta. They've kept me in here two years longer, and here I am talking about their corruption on the, on the air uh, because of this case. And if they had just let me be, I would have been gone by now. I had plans to move out anyways. So, but now that I'm here, I was like, well, I, I need to expose this corruption. I need to expose, and and not just expose it, I really had to get to the core of where the problems were. The, actually, the forum on Lost Coast Outpost, in, that was what I, the mechanism which, with which I came through all these solutions by. So these questions people ask, I really had to dig deep. Like, what would you do to improve the system? Are we better off than we were eight years ago? Um, what do you think about doing, you know, what, what do we do about repeat offenders? All these questions people posed, I never really, really, really thought about them until those questions were posed. And I spent a lot of time researching and answering those questions. And now I think I have a very consistent philosophy um, about the priorities that should be in America and about why we're the most incarcerated country in the world, but not the safest and not the one with the, the best political and civil li- political rights and civil liberties, okay? So I think I've figured a lot of it out through the course of this election. And um, I don't know that any th- of the three of us had it figured out when we started this campaign because I didn't know Maggie wasn't going to run again, and I wouldn't have probably run against Maggie Fleming. I mean, she's got me by 10 years practicing law. You know, she's her bar number is in the low 100,000s. Mine is exactly 200,000. Adrian Kamada's is near 300,000. He's only been practicing eight years. He's not even qualified to be a judge, okay? You need 10 years for that. And if there's seven judges, only one DA, what's the more important position? Right, you can't. It's a bottleneck in the system. It's the DA's office. So now, Stacy Eads um, is. I have n- nothing bad to say about Stacy Eads or Mr. Kamada, but Stacy Eads has been there since Terry Farmer. Total respect for Stacy Eads. She, if anyone is entitled to the position, it's her. But no one's really entitled to an elected position in America, right? So um, the only everyone has their Achilles heel. Hers is probably the Marcy Kitchen case um, because she handled that personally, and and I, I think most people think that was. Not a good settlement for the, the people of the state of California. Um, she basically got off. And that was Stacey's settlement, and that was her case, and she carried that case. Now, so, my understanding, maybe you know a little bit more about that. 
is there was something funky going on with county funds that had been allocated for the road that that I, happened on. And I don't that's, know. I hadn't heard that. What I why I'd heard on the street, word on the street is that Mars Kitchen's boyfriend is connected somehow in the pot world, you know, and that there were some favors being pulled there. I, I don't know if that's true. I'm not saying I have any documentation for that. That's word from the street, or at least the streets I run around in. Uh, I think that's also a point that, that scares them too is, you know, I have one foot in the establishment and one foot on the streets because I'm a criminal defense attorney. You know, if you want to get at a problem on the street, if you want to solve street crime, um, your person closer to it knows more about it. I know a lot about things in this county. I know a lot about things uh, that I should have known, you know, because it's confidential. Confidence has been given to me that I'll never say to anybody because they, their confidences. And I you do have that me. unique perspective where you've been a public defender, a criminal defense, criminal. private criminal defense yeah. And I have the trust of. You of, haven't been a public defender. No, uh, not in this. I, no, it was not, a private criminal. Yes, defender. private criminal defense lawyer. Um, and how long did you do that? I've been doing that for. Well, I've been doing that for 10 years. I was doing it in different jurisdictions, too. I used to be, I used to be appointed public defender in South Dakota, uh, in Bennett County, and in Oglala Sioux Tribal Court, um, and in the uh, South Dakota Federal District Court, I've taken appointments to, for uh, criminal defense. So I've been practicing in two states, different states, for well over 20 years. I graduated in 94, so I, I mean, I'm the most experienced by a lawyer of the three running. I'm the oldest one by age. Um, uh, and you are you are also the only one with a criminal investigation, though. Tech oh on. yeah, absolutely. That's my Achilles heel. Is the criminal, and it's sad because it's completely false. Do you but think that that's you my Achilles heel? That's why. Was, that's why what, some people won't vote for me because I yeah. have a pending case. And, and what there I'm hasn't is, been this forum for you right, yet. And, and, and you and haven't the, come forward so, to do that yet. Right. And what I'm saying is, the pending criminal case is why you should vote for me because if 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 I can lay it all out, and I'm about to do an article, a press release on all the details because it didn't come up during the debate. These are the reasons you should vote for me because this shit shouldn't happen. Okay. People should get all their discovery when they're being prosecuted. Okay. Cases should be initiated by politicians. By political lobbying efforts, that shouldn't happen. Judges shouldn't be involved in a case when they did endorsements for people that are the reporting party in the case. Um, they should be able to follow up on indicia found uh, instead of doing pre-investigate pre-arrest investigations. The district attorney's investigators should be following up on indicia found at the scene of a crime, like the like the Shelley Aubrey uh, indicia, to see who. Who else would you ask? Whose bag of drug is this? I don't know. Why don't we ask the lady whose name is in it? <laughs> you know? So well, your case gets uncomfortable because it touches on a lot of realities that we would rather ignore. Yes. Of people essentially planning drugs, which we all know police have done. I mean, that's not yes. a secret. That, that's happened. That's happened. In congressional records, everything. I was just looking we, at that. We would like to believe that it doesn't yeah. happen anymore. Yeah. yeah. It happens. It's in, I was looking at this 2007 report on confidential informants where the Congress, the federal Congress, documents all of that. It said, you know, just a line for, as a result, the criminal offenders are uh, wrongfully granted leniency and other individuals are falsely implicated in criminal activity. This is a congressional joint committee making these findings, you know. And uh, if you want to find it, it's a 2007, I think the date is uh, it's a transcript from a congressional hearing on informants and how civil rights abuses happen and are uh, frequent, are the norm, that people give, are given leniency in exchange for um, information which isn't always reliable and which there are profit motivations involved in, asset forfeiture profit, it talks about that. So this is documented by Congress, documented by the state, the state's curbing asset forfeitures, um, 
Some of the other things, like my idea about probation is not that far-fetched. Eliminating probation, just last year, the California state legislature reduced felony probation from five to three years and misdemeanor from three to one year in an acknowledgement that probation isn't having the impact that we thought it would have. It's not deterring people. It's just nitpicking them along the way of their lives. Some of these people have a job that now they're they're allowed to be out, they're given a discount on their crime, and then suddenly they're nitpicked for not showing up or something, and they're put back in the system. It's causing recidivism. It's part of the statistics of recidivism. We should eliminate that. We should do the time for your crime up front. Terminal sentences in every case. Make people, If it's worth putting, remember the whole principle of, you're putting a human in a cage, okay? That's already extreme remedy, right? Human being in a cage, to me, is extreme. If some people's belong in cages for their behavior, Let's make them do it up front, terminal sentences in every case, not give them a second chance for something that we think they should have been put in a cage for and then nitpick them for things that they shouldn't have been put in a cage for, like not showing up or not or peeing dirty or something like that, okay? Let's just get it straight here and be simple about it. Back to straight retributive justice theory. Retros- you're punished for what you did proportionally and equitably. I do have to press a little bit harder on the drugs just Mm -hmm. because in doing this, I'm hoping it provides clarity. Yeah. Um, Maggie Wortman. Maggie Wortman. Wortman. She's my former, uh, my ex wife, your ex wife. Was there any drug use with her at the Um, time? I was separated from her. Are you talking about the time my son died? Yeah. I was not with her when my son died. That's why I wasn't charged. I okay. was separated from her. That Legally weekend, separated? No. That, well, that weekend's a very sensitive subject for me, but I'll talk about it. I know. It, you don't have to. Fact, it's no, just people to. will ask about the, it. The if... fact that I can talk about it now without breaking down entirely shows some progress because I couldn't for a long time talk about the subject. Um, let me put it this way. My, last, my dying thought on this planet will be I'm going to see my son. Okay, that'll be my that'll be my dying thought. So I, the fact that I can talk about it now is is amazing. But that weekend I was separated um, by her. I'll say she broke up with me specifically because she was going to have some sort of party. In retrospect, I guess it was a Friday. I saw him last. Um, she told me if I didn't leave her residence at the reservation that she would um, call the police on me or have me beat up. Um, she made some former allegations against me that were dismissed so I didn't want to get back involved in that and the right thing to do was to leave and if you can't trust your baby's mom with your son who can you trust that was the thought that went through my head and so I didn't just grab him and run because it was a coldest night of the year and the wind up there was blowing um that, that I remember that windmill just spinning so fast and so I did the right thing and left her residence at her request told her that I would file for custody paperwork on Monday to get 50-50 custody and he died Saturday night in her custody so I wasn't even present we were split up um and that and frankly I don't and frankly not in her defense she did six years and it is what it is I walked away from it so let the chips fall but there were no organs that failed in my son's body that's the report says he died of meth toxicity it's not true because no organs failed in his body, according to the autopsy. That's a conclusion of uh, the coroner that was not based upon um, the facts of the autopsy. The autopsy said no organs failed. 
The only anomaly in the autopsy is that said there were anomalies of the cells in his esophagus. He lost his breath. That's what it shows. The only question is whether it was intentional or negligent. It could have been the door blew open from the trailer because she was seen at, at the uh, last call for alcohol at 2 a.m. at Bear River, meaning no one was at the trailer apparently, and I was at my house, of course, because I was thrown out. Um, so the door could have blown open from the trailer and the wind could have caused him to lose his breath, or he was murdered. And, and I tend to believe the latter because um, Christy McCoy was involved and Christy McCoy uh, was never involved in our lives before that. She was from Hoopa. She said she was uh, a, a, a bad medicine, a dark uh, medicine person from Hoopa. She was a basket weaver. She was weaving the future of uh, Maggie's daughter and that my son wasn't in that future and I wasn't in that future. Um, I think she may have murdered my son, honestly. And she's now doing time for attempted murder of her father, who she shot in Hoopa. She's doing a 15-year term now. So she is crazy, and she is homicidal, and um, she saw my son as an obstacle to um, Maggie's development, and I think she killed my son. That's and She just uh, suffocated him. And and I did that investigation on my own, starting from the autopsy and interviewing people that were avail uh, present at the scene, all of whom would say, where's Michael? And they say, he's not here. She actually told a good friend of mine, Eileen Meyer, up there, or um, no, it was another witness that said, uh, where's Michael? And she said, that, oh, he's down at the trailer. I wasn't at the trailer. I was home. She had thrown me out. Um, so I was home alone. And um, I'll always regret not just having run with my child that night, Friday night. But um, They didn't do a toxicology report? They did a toxicology, and there was meth found in the system, but that's not what caused his death. She was breastfeeding. That, I guess she was breastfeeding that weekend. People, the eyewitnesses said that she was breastfeeding in the trailer, very small trailer. There was a party going on. I, I interviewed upwards of 10 people that were around that trailer that saw my son. He was well as late as 2 a.m., almost 2 a.m. when she left to go get liquor at the bar. He was okay. Um, my friend Billy Robinson, who lives there, said he saw my son. He looked fine. No jaundice in the eyes, nothing wrong, nothing noted in the report that would indicate toxicity right and then suddenly at 4 a.m he is the, the, if you date okay bodies um get cool a uh, tenth of a degree per hour or something like that per half hour or something i did the calculation that they told me and it puts his death in the, in the corner agreed 4 a.m so between 2 a.m and 4 a.m she was gone from the trailer he couldn't possibly have um unless he got into something that he she left around there he was he was perfectly fine at 2 a.m but the, the anomalies in his esophagus on a six-week-old child, I can't, they said that was insignificant. They're the only anomalies in his entire body. There was no other cell ruptures. There was no other damage, toxicity, anything found. No cellular damage to his body except for in his esophagus. And they're telling me that he died of meth toxicity because they found meth in his blood from her breastfeeding. I don't, I think that's wrong that she was doing that, but that's not what killed him. Does meth toxicity always lead to organ failure? Um, does well, I mean, could organ been... failure leads to death. But yeah, but meth... could he have lost his breath as a result of the meth? I've, that would be a. I've never even thought of that. I don't know. I because think, I, mean, I would I, think that's a stretch. I, but I, I, I don't know anything about meth. Yeah, but I would imagine it can't be great for a child to be consuming right. that through the breast milk. But, but then again, if she was doing that, she was probably doing that. For, because we were on and off at that point. We were spotty at best, with the, especially with the birth of our child. It had caused our relationship. It caused a lot of controversy down there because I was the general counsel for the tribe, and she was the, the daughter of the treasurer of the tribe. 
and I was the chairman's golf partner and the treasurer, the chairman didn't get along. <laughs> so it had been a rocky relationship. And um, so she, it was not the first time probably that she had done that. In fact, I found out afterwards and I found out afterwards that during a prenatal examination by Padua, she had tested positive for meth. The baby, uh, she had tested positive for meth um, prenatal. So uh, Before having? Yes. So that, the child had been exposed to that before he was born. So you knew that she had I didn't your... know. No, I didn't know that till oh. afterwards. They Did told you know me... that she was consuming anything I didn't think... after childbirth I or at any point? I couldn't time? stop her from breastfeeding. I couldn't. I mean, short no, of you... I knew that she was, was breastfeeding. Um, I didn't. The timeline was, I knew she was using occasionally, but and that she was breastfeeding occasionally, and I didn't know. They overlapped. I assumed that they overlapped. I did. But what was I supposed to do? Um, the child was six weeks old. I'm trying to save my relationship and do the right thing. And I'm not going to call CWS. I don't believe that's a solution to calling CWS on my own native. And Maggie has a a history of her own that's um, traumatic, very traumatic. She was she was had some things happen to her in foster care when she was very young. And um, so I was trying to work with her, and I wasn't going to cause a CWS case for my own child. But and I didn't know how frequent it was, and so. Yes, but that night, the influence of this person that had come into our lives that weekend, Christy McCoy, I didn't feel right about leaving my child, but it was so cold out and so windy, and I was parked in a parking spot that such that Maggie probably would have broken my windshield if I had tried to take my child and run, get into the car and safely pull out. It wasn't going to happen from her place. She, was, she had broken two of my windshields before in similar circumstances. So I thought the right thing to do was to trust the mother of my child and leave the child with her. And I regret that. I'll always regret that decision. So I should have done something else. I should have gotten arrested over. I should have stayed there and said, I'm not leaving. I could, you, know, you always, what if? It's a tragedy. You always, what if it afterwards? And I've what if it for so long um, that um, it just, there's no sense to it. I mean, I went to um, counseling over it. And someone told me that sometimes in life that agreements are made before this lifetime about what should happen in this lifetime um, and that's the only way I could even make sen- any sense of it, you know, that that somehow, some way, you know, God knows there was some sort of plan behind it, you know. I mean, he did effectively save my life. My two sons, I always say, my first son saved my life. He took a bullet for me because that probably would have been me that she was trying to kill <laughs> because she was a little bit crazy like that. Um, and Christy McCoy was definitely crazy. She ended up shooting her own father, trying to rob him. And is doing time over it now. So this, we're dealing with a crazy homicidal person that which just entered our life. So he probably took a bullet for me, and my second son then gave me a reason to live again because I was out at that point. I didn't practice law. I lived in darkness for two years in my house, no PG&E. <laughs> Sat there and wished I would die every night um, until I met um, Sarah, and she agreed to have a baby for me. Um, it wasn't like it was by chance. We wanted to have a baby. She said she knew my story and what had happened with Maggie, and said she'd have a baby, a, son, a child for me. And so I wanted, I wanted to be a dad. So we had a, a child. And so my second son gave me a reason to live again. Um, and so both of my sons impacted my life um, severely. You know, they both saved my life basically. <laughs> um, so and I and, and he is a native of Humboldt County. My my son Michael and um, he deserves better than what's going on in, in the, the criminal case against me. He doesn't, he knows his father is not a heroin dealer. He's in his mind. He knows that I'm not a drug dealer. He's never seen that. He knows I'm not a firearms dealer. <laughs> um, he has respect for the police, but he believes that there has been some 
corrupt. He understands what corruption means now, and he understands that people in positions of authority don't always do the right thing. That that there are cases of abuse. I'm not saying it's all police. People say, well, not all police are bad, Michael. And I say, yeah, that's one way to look at it. But look at it this way. If a bad cop or some a cop that does a bad thing does something to a non-cop, a civilian, um, what do the other cops do about it? Nothing, usually. Nothing. That's the code, right? That's the, co- the blue code, whatever they call the blue line. And doesn't that make them bad cops? They're good people. And they're good cops, but they see a, an egregious violation of, by a bad cop, and they never come out and say it and call it out like I would, like a good person would. I can't call them a good person if they're not going to call their own brethren, their own fraternity members. If they can't call them out on an egregious crime, that doesn't make them a good cop to me. They might be still a good person. So I agree that most cops are good people, but I think they're all the institution of what the police have become without civilian oversight now is a bad thing just like the president would be of the United States if he wasn't a civilian overseeing the military. I mean, just like the, mil- the military would be if there wasn't civilian oversight of it. We need to have civilian oversight of the police. Otherwise, we're going to be a police state, particularly with the profit incentive that's been created by these asset forfeiture laws. While, while you were with Maggie, were you using any substances? Um, she introduced me to all substances up here. <laughs> she was, she would say, "Hey, I, I'm doing this. Do you want to try it?" So, uh, yeah, I, just like in college, there was some experimentation. She, I was in love with Maggie. I was in love with Maggie, um, and so I followed her lead a lot. But um, that 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 whole relationship was so pretty toxic. Severely, so severely impacted me. It was it was toxic at times, but it wasn't only toxic. There was some love there, and I think she had to, she admittedly and her friends admitted that they she got with me just to play me, just to hustle me because I was a tribe's attorney. But along the way, because I did get robbed during that by her, she robbed my house. She robbed you. She robbed me along with the tribe the same night. Yeah, and there was a lot of people um, that um, got impacted by that. It was it was blatant like home invasion shit. So it was terrible. But along the way, she I think she fell in love with me at one point. And so that was a conflict in her mind because she was only supposed to be playing me and hustling me. <laughs> so, um, but I was I was in love with her, and I certainly love my son. I was, it was my pride. He was my pride and joy. And so that that I mean, I always say I'm half dead, and it's a true statement. When if you ever have seen a dead body or found a dead body, let alone your child's dead body. When I went down there to check on him Sunday morning and she, to bring the child, the, the seat, we had an exchange of property going because we broke up. So here's your, the baby seat and give me my DVR and stuff and stuff. Exchanging property, looked around, didn't see my son. I came, got her the car seat from my car, left it there. And then she said, Michael, there's a problem with our son. And I said, what? And she said, look, he's not breathing. And I said, don't fuck with me, Maggie. Don't say things like that. She said, no, really, look, he's not breathing. And she pulls him out, turns around, and he's got rigor mortis already. He'd been done since four o'clock in the morning. I was there at like seven. He had... And she didn't notice until you showed she up? She wasn't... She didn't notice. I don't even know where she took him out of. He wasn't on the bed when I went in there. I literally touched his little arm, and he was like this, arm spread out. He wasn't... She claimed that he was breastfeeding on her like this. He was arm spread out like this, rigor mortis, okay? Uh, I touched his little body... And I literally felt half of my soul die with him, <laughs> and half of him came into me. And that's why I was I'm half dead. I literally felt a split in my person, a split in this energy, and it drained into him, and he came into me. And 
it left with him. And so I've always said, I'm half dead. Um, nothing's mattered to me material since he died. Nothing. I don't care about money. I'm not doing this for a pay increase. I'm not doing this um, for my ego. I don't have any ego anymore. <laughs> I don't care about anything in the world except for my son, my parents, um, doing the right thing. And um, like I said, my last thought will be I'm going to see my son when I die. So I'm not doing this for any egotistical reasons or money reasons. I'm doing this because of an injustice. And I feel it's one of the things I could do that could give meaning to my life in correcting some of this. And I think not only for my personal vindication, I think I have some ideas and solutions that would make American justice and the system of American justice what it should be. And that's why I'm running. I'm genuinely running because I have the solutions. They are, like as you said, doesn't that seem a little extreme or outrageous? But they're not. If you really think outside the box, because if you're in the box, the box is broken right now. Box is broken, and so you have to think outside. The the the, the issue of uh, exile exclusion sounds way out of the box, right? It is, but it's common sense. Communities have done it for years, eons. I mean, eras. King of England, did, you know, it's an old solution. It almost makes too much sense to be part of the system. Um, confiscation of as a policy for. Let's go back to common law crimes. I want to get. I want my son. When I'm dead, because I'm 52, my baby's mom's a little younger than me. That was intentional because I wanted my son to have a parent around when he's older. And I'm having kids when I'm, you know, 48, you know, for, for late 40s, right? So my dad had me when he was 26, and he's still around for me. So I, I was worried that my son wouldn't have a parent around when he's older. And so I had a child with a younger woman so that she would be around. And I want him to have a better life. I want him to have a better community. I don't want him to feel intimidated by the police. I don't want him to feel like he can't be who he is and speak his mind and work for justice and work for fairness um, in America. I don't want to have, to have him move to Portugal or Greenland or any of these countries that are coming out of the dark era, the dark ages of, of criminal justice, which is what we're still in, um, and being putting, being putting humans in cages for merely possessory offenses. <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. I don't want my son to grow up in a world like that. If Maggie Fleming wasn't running and this hadn't happened to you, would you still have thrown your name in the race? I, I don't think I'd run against Maggie, Maggie Fleming out of respect. But if her. she wasn't running she and wasn't. this had not happened to you with your case? Um, if, she, if this hadn't happened with my case, I would probably be in Maui, right? You'd find me in Maui right about now. <laughs> Honestly, I, I'm like I said, I'm over being a lawyer. So you were ready to start buttoning this I'm, up. I'm re I was ready to start. I was ready to leave um, the state, um, possibly the United States. I, I, but most likely I was going to do some time in Maui. I, I have a life as a musician. I have a life as a family member. I want to show my son some things about the world and growing up. I want to spend as much time as I can with him. Um, I'm sacrificing that to be here right now, <laughs> for example. I would sacrifice that to be the DA for Humboldt County for four years. I would only be a one-termer because I'm not willing to give up much more than that. But I do have a lot of solutions and a lot of experience in my mind, and I would, in fact, benefit the system. And it wouldn't be in a cursory sort of way. We would make historic changes, historic changes, big changes, in line with what Portugal has done, what Germany has done. The people in America don't realize what Germany or Portugal or 29 other countries, people aren't even aware that the World Health Organization, the United Nations, has requested decriminalization amongst the nations as a matter of world health. The reports are online, people. You can find them at the United Nations, okay? Uh, people aren't aware of these things, and, and 
if you want to see justice in your lifetime, then it's not going to happen um, with a status quo candidate. Even though, otherwise, if a system wasn't broken, Stacey Eads is entitled to it, hands down. She's, entitled, she's done the work. She's been there since Terry Farmer. She's entitled to the position, if anyone's entitled to a position. Do you think that you are a better candidate in the sense that you're going to take it farther than she will? I think I'm a better candidate in the sense of I will make the bigger historic changes that are necessary to fix a broken American criminal justice system. And you don't I, think she will make those changes? I, no, no, I don't. I don't, I don't think she will. I don't think, I, and not that she doesn't have it cap, the capacity to do it. I just don't think the politics work out that way. She's a, she's um, a very astute. Remember, she probably had the inside information that Maggie wasn't going to run way before anybody else did. So she had her campaign ready to roll out and she's good at it. And she's, she is, um, if anyone's entitled to it, she is. She's been there since Terry Farmer. But no one's entitled to a position in America that's elected, first of all. And secondly, if you want to see the kind of justice system that we all deserve and a community um, that prosecutes people proportionally and equitably, it's not going to happen with her. She's going to leave the informant system in place. There's, there's not going to be transparency of the extent and the gravity of the informant crimes that are occurring and the extent of the police involvement with those. The police will still pr pursue asset forfeitures for profit at the expense of property crimes. This is exactly why we have property crimes occurring still. Even though we have more incarcerated people, we still have lots of property crimes. Those are the category of people letting, letting off the hook for the money pursuit. Okay? That's not going to change with her. That's just going to be business as usual. And if you're happy with business as usual, vote for Stacey Eads. And that's not a put down. I mean, I, you know, I bless that transaction. I bless that, that sentiment. If you are happy with what's going on, vote for Stacey Eads. She's a good candidate. I have no problems endorsing Stacey Eads for, for the position. She's absolutely a wonderful person. She's a good person. She's kind and she's worthy. Um, but if you want to see, the vote for me is I want to see how many, what percentage of the population thinks that historic changes need to be made in the system. Historic changes, like like desegregation was a historic change in 1954 under Brown v. Board of Education, like that kind of change. You want to see that kind of historic change in the system. You want to see actual transparency. You want to see actual fairness. You want to see criminals behind bars up front terminally, terminal sentences without probation second chances, theoretical second chances that just keep them in a pattern of recidivism, really. Um, you want to see an end to... Uh, possessory crimes insofar as they don't endanger the community, um, similar to what marijuana legalization is doing, um, but just decriminalization, confiscation policies, um, putting social services back in the medical offices and the social service agencies and keeping the DA's office as a lean, mean jail machine for the people that need to be put, for humans that need to be put in the cages, you send them through the DA's office. We're not going to be monitoring the rehabilitation efforts in court anymore. We're going to be putting people in cages that need to be in cages. And it's I'm not let everybody out of the jail candidate. I am put people in jail that need to be there and keep them in there longer if they need to be kept in longer. But let's not put them in there for stupid things, not like checking in. They didn't check in. They have a dirty test or something like that. Um, if you want to see those historic changes, if you want to see the police held accountable, that's a big one. If you want to have respect for the police, but you want to have civilian oversight of the police, if you want to see them wear body cameras. If you want to see them wear body cameras, you should vote for me because I have a plan to make them wear body cameras. It's the presumption of civilian credibility. And it's an axiom of the presumption of innocence. If a defendant says it happened one way and the police say it happened a different way, I'm going to say, where is your body-worn camera? And if they don't have it, I'm going to tend to believe the civilian because that's the people. And that's who I represent. 
Okay, that will force them to wear their department issue body worn cameras in almost every case, which will in turn force, will allow the courts to free up time. Most of the time in court, we're arguing about facts that could have been resolved with a video camera. Like 60% of the time in court, that's what we're doing, right? So if they just wear their camera, we go to, as a criminal defense lawyer, if they have it on camera, I go, hey, they got you on camera. You need to plead this out. Or, hey, it shows that you didn't do it. They should be dropping the case, right? That's, that's, that's most of the waste of time in court is resolving facts. So I'll be honest. Prior to sitting here and actually talking with you, it seems like, or it seemed like the race was really between Kamada and Eats. I don't think you really get a feel. I knew through you, I knew of you in a cursory glance of, okay, this was, this guy's running for DA. He also has these felony charges. And it just doesn't seem like your side is really out there. How do you feel about your chances going into this race because of that? (laughs) That's the other thing. That's the other thing I'm trying to change and to show people. I can't, I can't change this because it's not a, it's not a, something DA can do. But what I'm trying to do is, is run by example. Okay. I was political science major. Stanford. Um, I follow politics mostly. Um, I don't believe in campaigning the way American politicians do. I don't believe that the traditional formula formula is raise money in a war chest, make some signs, get your name out there. And by osmosis of name recognition, you win the campaign by how many signs you have that don't say anything substantive. They just say, vote for me, basically. Right. And it's a completely money based um, psychological mindfuck approach to campaigning and politics in America. And I don't believe in it. I want to change that. I'm running grassroots. I have no money invested in this thing. I have no signs around town. There's a few people wearing t-shirts that say vote for Michael. They all have custom slogans that they made up themselves. Okay. They're custom t-shirts that they had made. Okay. I don't have any endorsements. I'm not seeking any endorsements, but at the same time, I'm not in anyone's pocket. I don't owe anyone any favors, uh, because they contributed to me. Um, the, the campaign should be about solutions, experienceability and solutions mostly, not about name recognition, endorsements, how much is in my war chest, um, you know, fundraising. That's a, a bunch of bullshit. It's a bunch of bullshit. It's not what makes the man or the woman. It's not what makes person. It's a bunch of bullshit, but it kind of works. It works, and that's why I'm going to lose. That's the problem. So you think you're going to lose. Oh, I never thought I was going to win. I'm trying this is an educational campaign to show people that there's a different way to go about politics. But isn't that kind of like screaming into the void? Uh, By saying, hey, yeah, we no, could be doing things no. better and we could be, we could no. make a change. But well, it's like saying Jesse Jackson never should have run for president or Ralph Nader should have never run for president. I mean, they were, they were trying to um, do what they could as a single, small, meek, humble person to educate for a future generation. And uh, maybe that's all this is about. Uh, I didn't expect to get, I, I said, I'd be happy. I was looking and Ralph Nader got 6% of the vote. Jesse Jackson got 18% of the vote. Okay. I look at these things. I know he's politics. I knew the numbers of this election better than the other two candidates out the gate. The numbers, meaning how many votes did Maggie Fleming win with last time? 24,000. How many actually voted in the election last time? 32. So one quarter of those that participated in the election didn't vote for Maggie Fleming and she ran unopposed. You got 24,000 votes, okay? Uh, overall, 132,000 people in the county, 106 to 108,000 that are eligible to register with about 80,000 registered last I checked. That means there's about 50,000 registered 
disenfranchised people, disenfranchised voters who didn't bother voting because they didn't think it would make a difference. That's a lot of people. A lot of people. And I figured if I can reach those people that are disenfranchised, the, the politically disenfranchised, disenfranchised the, 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 the people that have been abused by the system, the people that don't think that their vote would make a difference, if I could reach them and if I could get what the Reverend Jesse Jackson got or even Ralph Nader, 6%, 18%, that's that's a victory for me. More, you know, in in my own life, that's a victory for me to stand up and say, you know, the big fuck you. You know what? Fuck you. You're gonna prosecute me. I could be your boss. I'm qualified to be your boss. Okay, I'm qualified and experienced enough to be your boss. Fuck you if you don't like my solutions because you're not ready for them. Ten years from now, that's the way America's gonna go. When we finally look at what Germany and Europe's doing and what the World Health Organization is saying to do, that's hopefully the way America goes. Maybe it's not me that makes that change, but maybe some people will say, hey, you know, Michael Acosta proposed that a long time ago. He said the same thing. <laughs> My mom always says that about me. She says, Michael, you were talking about sustainability back before that was like a politically correct term to use. Back in the 80s, you were talking about ecological sustainability, and now everybody's talking about that. <laughs> so I, maybe I'm a 10 years ahead of my time. I don't care. I might not be around 10 years. You know, you never know in life. So um, I'm doing this out of my own conscience. And I tell people, vote your conscience. If you want status quo, if you think things are good, vote for Stacey Eads. No disrespect to Mr. Kamada. She's just got the experience. You know, she's, she's, if anyone's entitled, she's entitled. That's my common line, I say. Me, for myself, you want to see historic changes in the system. Um, because remember, you're electing, the elected DA doesn't, litigate the most cases, doesn't do all the murder cases. Maggie didn't do any of the murder cases, I don't think, okay? Um, you're not voting the best litigator. You're not voting the person who does the most cases in the office. You're voting for someone to set policy and priorities in prosecution for criminal justice. You're voting to set, decide what priority is, uh, w which category of crimes do we put people in cages over? <laughs> and which ones should we just say, those are social service issues. Um, you are voting for transparency in government honesty and integrity in government. Stacey has the integrity. Mr. Pomada has the integrity. Um, but again, do you want to see um, Brown v. Board in your lifetime? Do you want to live, I mean, if you were a segregated student in 1952, did you want to see historic changes in, in education, right? Do you want to see those historic changes in criminal justice in America? And now's the time to do it because there might not be another. I might not run again. There might not be another Michael Acosta comes around with my credentials and experience who has one foot in the streets and one foot in the institution of the court um, that will make these changes and spearhead them and deal with the backlash over it. Because if I was the theoretically elected, there will be backlash just like Chase Boudin is going through in San Francisco. He's being recalled. Excuse me. He's being recalled. And I expect there to be backlash if I was elected. That's natural when historic changes are happening. It happened during Brown v. Board when they desegregated schools. But I, I'm in a good position to withstand that because look at me now. You know, I'm being prosecuted. I'm running for DA. I'm used to it. I'm used to m myself and my house and my associates being under investigation unfairly. No matter what we do, even if we were angels, I'd be under investigation because I'm outspoken and I want change. And I, and I don't believe in the greed of America that we're seeing in the institution. So... I'm always going to be in an investigation from that standpoint, <laughs> but um, it's up to you. you know. You're in an interesting spot, man. You were in an interesting spot. It's different yeah. <laughs> than what you normally see, and there's no precedent. But rest assured, if I was elected and being still prosecuted, it would be mandatorily ethically bumped to the attorney general's office. And I have no doubt in my innocence, um, so I'm not really that worried about it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, crazier things have happened, right? Yeah.
It will it will be interesting to see what happens June seventh. You know, I think I think most people have already voted the election since. So other than yeah, I haven't right. voted. I haven't right. voted. So yeah, I. Every, it's, I, it's, I it's a strange election. Out. That's the other thing. Okay, so there's two things that are going on. Anyone out of custody can vote. Whether they're felon or not, the felons in this county number more than half of 24,000. They're probably 12, 13,000. They alone could hand the election to someone, okay? If they voted, if they knew they could vote, they don't know they can vote, some of them. Two years ago, they changed the California Constitution to allow parolees to vote. So literally, anyone out of custody can vote. Even the people in custody can vote if they're only there on pretrial detention, okay? Not that they can get mail-in ballots. The other factor is it's an all-mail-in ballot, virtually all-mail-in ballot. Used to be you had to request a mail-in ballot. Now they're mandatorily sending to you as a COVID thing or something like that. You can go in and vote in person if you bring your mail-in ballot in on the 7th. But by and large, this election is going to be decided by June 7th. The people that were staunchly... Uh, had their minds already made yeah, up. Kamada, Stacey Eads, or Costa voters have already sent their ballots in. This election comes down to the undecided voter. And not only the undecided normal voter, but the, the disenfranchised normal non-voter the 50,000 that didn't vote that were registered to vote last time. And if I can reach some of them and say, you know, it's worth your time to vote if you want to see Brown v. Board in a, you know, the analogy in criminal justice system. Because I promise you I will make those changes. I promise you I'm not looking for a pay raise or to be a long-term district attorney. It'll be a one-time, one-term deal because I got my own life to live, okay? I don't want to be the DA forever, and I don't want to be a lawyer forever. But I will do this for this community, which it was – the marijuana capital of the of America, which was considered the gateway drug of all the war on drugs since the Reagan era, since Nixon, who started the war on drugs. Mind you, Nixon's speech that started the war on drugs was supposed to be to help veterans of the Vietnam War. That's what he was referring to. As they came home from Vietnam, he said, we need to commit, we need to commit ourselves to a war on drugs to help the veterans of America adjust in, back in America. That's what it was supposed to be about. And it's been taken way off course to a for-profit venture. Okay. If you want to see all that ended and reversed and get back to fairness and, and transparency in America, then now it's time. Now it's time people. Cause I guarantee you it's not gonna be another me in the next election. I can't guarantee it. Probably not. Could be another me. Okay. Well we can, we've done three hours. Sorry. Unfortunately I got to get out of here. Yeah. Where can people find you? Where can they find your campaign if they're um, still trying to figure out who to vote for? Uh, what information to dig Local from? elections. Uh, I've answered 23 out of 23 questions posed. If they have any more questions, they can pose them. I've done my best to research. Honestly, I didn't give lip service to the answers. Let's put it that way. Any question asked, I legitimately researched it, considered it, and wrote an answer to. Um, I can be reached um, by email at uh, michael underscore acosta at protonmail.com. Um, again, I don't have a, head, a campaign headquarters because I can't afford one. So I didn't try to raise money for one, I should say. Um, and other than that, vote your conscience. I, I really want – I want to see an increase in voter participation. That would be a victory too. So God bless. Okay. Well, Michael, thank you, man. I I really enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad I, we could get this out there. Enjoyed being here. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks.